This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt. Your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Man, have we got a great show for you today. You know, we have I've talked a lot about FIFA. And not, not you know, not FIFA, FIFA, FOFA, FIFA. Um, FIFA and the, the great uh, scandal that's going on in FIFA. Now the FBI came in, do you remember? And uh, now um, they're starting to to bust it up, break up what they're saying is some illegal practices going on inside of FIFA. And we today are going to be talking with Dr. Declan Hill, who is an expert in organized crime and scandal in sports. He's an expert on it, uh, on that subject, by the way, has a, a doctorate from Oxford University, he's going to be joining us and uh, kind of walking us through uh, organized crime components of, you know, international soccer. We're going to get into a little bit about the International Olympics as well. Um, just there's, a, there's a, a large amount of corruption on the international level of a lot of these sporting uh, groups and, and overseeing committees. So, We'll be getting into that in our first hour. We're also going to be talking about, in the second hour, how to set boundaries with difficult people, if you ever run into that. And, uh, you know, which, how could you not? Some people just don't know, you know, where the where the limits are, where we need to stop doing certain things, where we might uh, want to just leave people alone. There's boundaries, there's rules, and we'll teach you how to how to set those with the people that you work with so that uh, you can feel safer. By the way, that's it's a lot of what needs... To happen in international soccer, great, uh, great. Um, in, I mean, interesting thing going on with the uh, those escapees from prison in New York. Holy cow! Found them about twenty five miles away. They didn't find them, but they found that they had been in a cabin. They found their DNA there, and uh, the person who I guess the cabin belonged to had pulled up and seen somebody running out the back and running away. So they're right hot on the trail. So that's interesting. We might be seeing something coming up from that. And the whole issue with uh, the Confederate flag in South Carolina, it's taken off. Uh, Haley Barber, Governor Haley Barber is coming out and is, is big on, uh, you know, it's time to take that flag down. Get rid of it. Get I know it has a great history. It's just not going to be part of our future, she says. And now Mississippi's going to be looking at theirs or or at least there's cries and pleas for others to look at it. So anyway, interesting stuff going on. Isn't it amazing how an event like that took place, that tragedy that took place at the church in South Carolina can can set up a whole lineup of other issues that need to be addressed and, and, and are being addressed. Plus, we, we really got to get into eventually uh, President Obama using the N-word uh, as, as he was talking about um, – about blacks and and black relations and just it's interesting things that we would never imagine happening are now happening few events can change so much but before we get into anything else let's first go i don't know deeply into our headlines is that what we're going to do yes we're- <laughs> that's my job <laughs> you say that 
Kathy Aiken, do your job. Thank you, Matt. South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley yesterday called for the Confederate flag to be removed from the state capitol. It's time to move the flag from the Capitol grounds. This is a moment in which we could say that that flag, while an integral part of our past, does not represent the future of our great state. Her announcement came just days after nine people were killed during Bible study at a Charleston church. Haley said for many in her state, the flag represents noble traditions, but for others, it's a deeply offensive symbol of an oppressive past. For the changes to be made, there needs to be a two-thirds supermajority in both chambers. Meanwhile, Walmart announced yesterday it's removing any items from its stores and website that feature the Confederate flag. The two New York, two New York prison escapees are still on the loose, and there's new information on how they may have gotten out. According to law enforcement officials, Joyce Mitchell smuggled tools used by the men by concealing them inside frozen hamburger meat. Mitchell has been charged with helping Richard Matt and David Sweat escape June 6th. Meanwhile, authorities say they found items that may belong to the men in a remote cabin in northern New York State. The Senate will hold a key vote today on whether or not to allow President Obama fast-track trade authority with 11 other Pacific Rim nations. At least 60 of the 100 members must approve the measure if it's to move on. Most of Obama's fellow Democrats oppose the bill. The House had to revive the legislation last week after Democrats stopped it. The data breach of U.S. government systems may be much larger than originally thought. New estimates claim nearly 18 million federal employees may have been affected by the break. That's four times larger than the original estimate announced just a few weeks ago. The breach, which is believed to have come from hackers in China, is thought to be the worst in U.S. government history, taking personal information of both current and former federal employees. Nowhere to go. We'll push it back out. Krieger, Morgan, flag staying down, and that goes in. May have been deflected past Castagna, but the U.S. has finally scored, but the U.S. leads. That was from last night's World Cup win for the U.S. as they defeated Colombia 2-0. But the win came with two key losses. Midfielders Lauren Holiday and Megan Rapino both received yellow cards for the second time in the tournament. The U.S. women will now play China in the quarterfinals on Friday. Tom Brady will appeal his four-game suspension in the deflate gate controversy in a hearing today with NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. The New England Patriots quarterback is charged with at least being generally aware of the fact footballs were being deflated during a game this season, something Brady denies. The hearing is expected to last no longer than two days. And according to ESPN yesterday, documents show Pete Rose not only bet on baseball as a manager, but also as a player. New documents show Rose bet numerous times in 1986 when he was a player manager no indication on whether he bet against his team you know that's that's really just so sad oh. that he he this is now coming out he admitted yeah. it after lying that he bet as a manager and now it's coming out he bet as a player and so that pretty much slams the door on him getting reinstated because how many times there was such a movement to try to get him in as uh, in the hall of fame and it seemed like with the change in the commissioner that may yeah happen, that could happen but now after that yeah no chance well see this gets into the big national idea that we wanted to talk about about cheating it's I mean, that's not that's gambling, but you can't have your players betting. Right. Especially against yourself. That's that's the key. And there's no indication he did that. But that would by far be worse than betting for you to win. But, yeah, when you talk about FIFA, I mean, there's been 
rumors Holy for cow. years here, you know, players throwing games and just the money and corruption behind it. It's, it's sometimes it's hard to watch because oh. you just go, is this real? Is this, you know, is this legit? Well, and the set bladder who was, has, was just elected president of FIFA and then resigned like four days later because of the right. indictments. Right. I mean, just as you sat there and were announcing, you were announcing the World Cup, the Women's World Cup um, win, he was, he, did you hear his comments about women? Oh, yes. In FIFA. Yes. And you're like, holy cow. You're the leader of FIFA and you're so sexist. And women have got nice legs. Put them on. But they're, I believe that was from a, uh, one of the men from Brazil. Oh, was it? Brazil. Yeah. Oh. I don't think it was Bladder. Okay. That wasn't yeah, Bladder. Yeah. But like that is like, holy I know, cow. I know. But the problem is with sports, just so much money is involved. And was yeah. it money is the root of all evil? Yeah. It's, it's really unfortunate. But there is... A lot of cheating. You just wonder how many people are cheating. It. We just hear those that are getting caught. Uh huh. I'm sure it's much worse. Well, than we and I guess the women are playing on more turf. Did you hear that? And it's it's beating. I don't. I mean, like real like astroturf. Mm-hmm. So it's it's harder on their legs. They're destroying their legs, and I don't know. It's just. And it's you hear the such reports of women. They they have more problems with their knees than the men for some reason. I don't know if yeah. they're weaker or yeah. exactly what, but yeah. Oh, my heavens. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to that on uh, FIFA. That yeah. will be interesting. It's pretty cool. This guy, uh, Dr. Declan Hill, he'll be joining us. We'll take a break in a minute here. And he's going he's gonna to teach us and educate us uh, on the fix. And it's, it was, it's in international sports. You know, the Olympics has struggled with um, bribery scandals. But uh, FIFA soccer as well, that they were, you know, basically there was bribery going on to determine where uh, some would play and um, where they would be actually giving, uh, where the World Cup would be held. I mean, just other things, too. I think uh, in Brazil, there's four stadiums that are billion-dollar stadiums that are never used anymore. They're not used. Countries spent billions of dollars trying to lure FIFA in. And now these huge stadiums are empty and lots and lots of money in these countries that don't necessarily have it. Qatar. How does Qatar in the middle of a desert win the FIFA games? Interesting stuff. We'll be talking about all of it up next with Dr. Declan Hill, author of the book The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime and Match Fixing. He's a match fixing expert. More when we come back. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Hey, in the wake of the Women's World Cup, FIFA has undergone a major investigation resulting in multiple indictments. And even its leader, Sepp Blatter, the president of FIFA, is has resigned. So just how far does the FIFA corruption go and what does the future of soccer hold With us today, we have the author of the book, The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime. He is a match-fixing expert, Dr. Declan Hill. Welcome to the program, my friend. Hey, thanks, Matt. I'd like to stress that I'm an anti-match-fixing expert. Yeah, I was was just thinking about that. That sounds so wrong, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. you're an expert in helping fix... there's nobody around going, hey, (laughs) career change, this is great. I'm an anti-match-fixing guy. Now, I mean, talk to us about that. You risked your life to go in and and figure out... You you actually worked with 
a gang and went undercover and to figure out how they are fixing the soccer matches. Yeah, um, here, here's the here's the the, the backstory that all our listeners should know. Globalization has hit the sports gambling market. So ten, five, even five years ago, uh, the sports gambling market was all divided. If you wanted to to place a bet on a local team anywhere in the world, you'd probably have to talk to some guy in organized crime at a bar or something like that. Now it's all on the internet. And so you've got this huge liquidity measured in hundreds of billions of dollars. And so what various Asian gangs have done is they've they've started to travel around the world and fix major international sporting tournaments like tennis. Mm. Tennis has a massive problem. Uh, Soccer is endemic. Um, And uh, I, I was doing my doctoral research at the University of Oxford out in Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, and I got involved in one of the one of the, the gangs as they were fixing uh, the World Cup of Soccer in Germany in 2006. And I want to stress, not every game, uh, you know, not every team, but there are significant teams in these big international soccer tournaments that don't get paid. Hmm. They get ripped off. Their salaries are taken by corrupt officials, which turns back to our FIFA story. Yeah. And so you have a team from, I don't know, Africa or former Soviet uh, empire uh, showing up at these tournaments and they're being ripped off. And then the, the, the Asian match fixing gang will come and they'll say, look, you're going to lose to Brazil. You're going to lose to Italy, one of the soccer superpowers. You may as well lose with 80, 90,000 bucks in your pocket. Huh. And so they've been doing this for, you know, almost uh, a generation. So back in the early 90s is when they started and uh, I got into this gang, uh, was around them uh, for a number of months uh, actively, and then even now I'm in contact with some of their rivals and some of their people that uh, uh, work against them. Um, so that, that's the basis of both my doctoral thesis and also my, uh, my, my number of my books. Wow. And so, and the fixing goes on. They just, they basically are saying, look, you're going to lose to Brazil. We just want yep. to make sure it's a guaranteed loss. So we'll pay you 80 grand. Just throw the game. Totally. Yeah, each. So oh, you know, that's that's for the World Cup. So you're you're talking about you know you know northwards of a million bucks to to fix say an African team or former former Soviet team in in the World Cup. But in some of these smaller soccer leagues around the world, it's not costing that much money. And there have now my my book, The Fix, kicked off sixty national police investigations around the world. In, in leagues that I didn't even know existed, like the Finnish second division, there's a, <laughs> a city where Santa Claus is supposed to live in oh, wow. the north of the Arctic Circle in Finland. Yeah. And lo and behold, uh, I was up there and, 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 and had a very painful interview with the owner of this local soccer team. He devoted his life to making the soccer team uh, go, you know, ever since he was a teenager in his 70s. And he discovered, you know, uh, the morning that the Finnish organized crime task force came sweeping in and arrested the nine of his players that they'd been working with these Asian match fixers for years, fixing wow. games. I mean, it's so that it, that and that situation is repeated around the world. Yeah, uh, up here in Canada, uh, where you'd think, hey, civilized country, blah blah, blah would be would be spared this. No, we also have that problem up here as well. And it, what is it? I mean, it's is it is it more? You said endemic to soccer. But and tennis is that is is has got a part of it. We know cricket, in the cricket, the uh, U.S. European Olympics, handball, uh, you know, badminton. Uh, Interesting. Look, it, it's basically any sport that attracts gambling, uh, and now it's this gambling market, and and 
that, that again, another fact, because uh, it's an extraordinary story, but, but the, the fact that our listeners need to know is most of the liquidity on the globalized sports gambling market is in Asia. Uh, China, all those uh, Asian countries gamble like crazy, and it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's the countries, it's the sports that they are interested in. Mm. So those, those bettors mostly gamble on soccer, uh, so that's why soccer has such an endemic problem. Tennis has a problem because it's the easiest sport in the world to fix. Yeah, right. To throw, isn't it? Uh, because yeah. so, so the Asian uh, the Asian groups might be then paying off an Italian team. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, there was a, a, a an organized crime task force that just made a series of arrests. Three weeks ago, same week that Sepp Blatter, uh, uh, you know, and all that thing happened. So it, did, it got very little attention. But the organized crime task force moved in in Naples and arrested officials. Get this, Matt. I mean, it's such a it's such a huge story. Thirty teams, three zero Italian teams were in on the fix. Wow. Teams, um, you know that that's a significant. Proportion yeah. of their entire league. Yeah, that's pretty much was, in a league. <laughs> yeah, you know they were they were fixing on a regular basis uh, with an Andrangheta, that's the Calabrian mafia, and they were linked to the Serbian, Russian, Malta uh, middlemen. But they were essentially placing their their bets on this Asian sports gambling market. Mm. So that and that's not, by the way. Italy, just Italy. You know, you got problems yeah. in Turkey, yeah. got problems in Greece. You got problems, as I said, in at least sixty countries around the world. When they when they fix a game, does the entire team know of the fix, or are just the leaders in the know? How do they do that without yeah, somebody it's, leaking? It's, it's an ex, it's an excellent question, and um, uh, you know, in my books, I, I actually have a chapter called "How to Fix a, a Soccer Game," mm. which is shows the the mechanisms that you use. Yeah, so. Ideally, uh, you'll just have the entire team, uh, which is what the Italian police uh, have, have said, is literally the owner of the team walks into the dressing room and goes, uh, okay, boys, don't try too hard today. And part of the professional code, I've spoken to hundreds of players, and they speak about to be a professional, you've got to know how to win, but you're also going to know how to lose well. Oh, my heavens. That's crazy. That's part of the code, the professional football code. Yeah, you know, and again, it's not it's not a spoken code. Yeah, you know, this yeah. isn't something they talk about things. And by the way, again, I want to stress this is not every single league, it's yeah, not right. every single team. But uh when I testified before the European Parliament a couple of years ago, I said, Look, there is a cancer in this sport, in European sport has a cancer. And I, I would say, by the way, to, to to my American listeners, don't get complacent. Don't get uh cocky. Because if they've destroyed these sports around the world, they're going to come for American sports. Yeah. And you want to be building your defenses now. Don't don't wait to build your fort when the Vikings have already arrived. Well, sure. Because they're, uh, going, to come and, they're uh, going to come and they're going to destroy American sports. I mean, it seems like NFL, NBA, these would all be prime candidates eventually for these, these groups because there's so much money to be made. Yeah, I don't want to speculate and, and lose credibility because this is such an, an, an enormous story that if some of our listeners have never heard this before, they may be sitting there going, hey, wow, you know. Yeah. So I, I don't want to lose credibility and, and start speculating on which American sports will, will fall vulnerable or, or would be most vulnerable. All I'm saying is to American sports fans, look, start 
start putting pressure on your sports officials now. This is the time when you really want to be beefing up your integrity hmm. uh, before you have a major problem. Well, I mean, it's so interesting because it's it's on the heels of the the deflate gate. I'm sure you've heard about that. And I mean, a minor issue, really, I guess, in the great yeah, deflate, scheme of things. Deflate gate and even Lance Armstrong are, are minor because the athletes are cheating to win. Mm-hmm. So oh, interesting! I yeah, that Lance Armstrong will one day be moderately rehabilitated because he was he was trying to win. Yeah, he was just doing what everybody, or excuse me, many of the other the rest of those cyclists were doing. It was doping, but he, they were trying to win. Fixing kills sport mm-hmm. because it's it's cheating to lose. They're all faking it. They're all they're all breaking the rules, but they're trying to lose. They're they're turning sport into a theater. Man. And that's uh, that's unforgivable as far as that really is. I mean, that's, and that's an interesting little. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting dichotomy, and um, such a fascinating thing. Let's do this. We're again talking with Dr. Declan Hill, who's the author of the book The Fix: Soccer and Organized Crime. A really fascinating read. Um, an international bestseller. I think it's in sixteen languages or so. But we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be discussing FIFA. Uh, I, w- I really want to know how come the U.S. got are the ones that are bringing these charges and the indictments. Why did it take the U.S., maybe the least football-minded country in the world, uh, to to go this way? And I uh, also want to find out just about what's going on internationally. Why why is it such a, a a big deal internationally? We'll we'll be discussing all of this and more up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to your guide on the side, the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. We are speaking with Dr. Declan Hill, who uh, is the author of the book, the international bestseller, The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime. He's uh, he's enlightening us as to the there is a, a high level of uh, corruption in um just sports, international sports worldwide. There's a lot of fixing going on. Um, a lot of gamblers or a gambling, uh, glo- he's calling it the globalization has hit gambling, where all of a sudden now there's a lot of money to be made in soccer or in a lot of sports and, and fixing the game so that, you, you know, you know who's going to win. A lot of, uh, I guess, uh, you know, mafia types, gangs, you know, Illegal cartels groups are are in are in on these uh, fixes. So, Doctor Declan Hill, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on. It's such an interesting subject, and we we it's really are we're naive story, to it, aren't way. we? It's such yeah, a big I, I thing. It's a kind of an American isolationism. Yeah. Um, uh, because you guys don't follow the sports that everybody else does, you're a bit late to this particular party. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but I remember as a Canadian. 10 years ago, being in Europe and saying, guys, prepare, get ready. And the Europeans were like, oh, yes, well, jolly good. Yes, we're all Canadian. But what would you know? <laughs> and, you know, and being treated with tremendous patronization. And boy, uh, you know, I think they wish that they'd listen because this is this really is globalization the same way that the uh, air traffic uh, industry has been changed, you know, journalism, yeah. whole bunch of industries have been changed by globalization. So in this weird way, illegal sports gambling has been hit by globalization, and it's just threatening international sport. I mean, Asian sport 
for the most part, there's some honorable exceptions, has been devastated by fixing and uh, really has lost sponsors, lost audiences, uh, you know, really, really lost it a lot. And by the way, just just to step back for one sec, Matt, yeah. it, this is such an extraordinary story. If there are American listeners that are just going, hey, Matt's been taken in by this guy, it can't be <laughs> happening, 60 national police investigations, I, I beg you, just check on Google. You know, just check the sad story of Taiwanese baseball that started in the early 90s with 13 teams and is now down to four. The other mm. nine have been thrown out of their league because they've been fixing so many games. Uh, same with Japanese sumo wrestling. Same with Chinese soccer, where there have been hundreds of arrests. Uh, Hong Kong, Philippines, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia, all these places have had systemic problems. There's even a Southeast Asian uh, mini Olympics going on right now as we speak. That's been hit by fixing. So these are really systemic problems outside of the United States. And my, my plea to America is start taking this seriously before you've got the problem. I'm, I'm not coming on your radio, Matt, and yeah. suggesting that America has the problems the rest of the world does, but I'm saying, hey, get it. Get your in- integrity. Get the FBI, a special bureau, set up now to deal with sports corruption. Talk about that, because the FBI are the ones that, of all people, again, uh, have indicted FIFA and some of the FIFA yes. leaders. Explain how the FBI got involved to go after FIFA. It's a quasi-protection racket. Here's why. If you were a criminal anywhere else in the world, you got a get-out-of-jail-free card if you were in a soccer federation. Hmm. And this has happened around the world, in Greece, in Ghana, in Iraq, excuse me, in Iran, in Poland, in many, Nigeria, many, many other countries. The police have moved in and they've started to investigate the soccer associations or individuals within the soccer association for tax fraud, for extortion, for racketeering, for all kinds of stuff. And the guys in Zurich, that's Seth Blatter and the, the guys, the, the Switzerland guys in FIFA, have gone to those national governments and say, if you continue with those investigations into these soccer associations, we will ban you from international soccer. Hmm. And that's a huge political threat yeah. in those countries. It is not in the United States. Right. If FIFA came and spoke to President Obama and said, you're not going to play in the World Cup because uh, you're investigating Chuck Blazer, you're investigating um, you know, the, the U.S. Soccer Federation, Obama would laugh. <laughs> Americans would laugh. Like, okay, bad us. We yeah. don't care. You know, like, we don't want to participate in some corrupt thing. But no Italian, Greek, uh, African, Asian prime minister or politician wants to be known as the guy that kept their national team out of international soccer. So FIFA has been very good at using this. And uh, uh, really, it's been a protection racket. If you were a corrupt guy, you wanted to be part of the president. You wanted to be the soccer federation. You wanted right. to be in there because you could do anything you wanted. As yeah. soon as the cops tried to investigate you, you just phone up your buddies in Switzerland and say, hey, you know, uh, uh, get me out of jail here. That's right. Well, and billions of dollars being made, right, by, the, yeah. by FIFA. Well, that's a separate issue. The FIFA indictment by the FBI was because the FBI and Americans, and bless your heart, American status around the world has just shot up. You really done an amazing job. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're getting toasts around the world. If for foreign policy success, that <laughs> FBI investigation has been one of the most extraordinarily successful 
you know, it's almost up there with the Marshall Plan. That is amazing. Celebrated around yeah. the world. When Loretta Lynch and the director of the FBI and U.S. law enforcement was doing that press conference, it was watched by hundreds of millions of people around the world, and it was being blessed by people. People that, that wouldn't normally like American foreign policy mm-hmm. are loving this. <laughs> so well done, the U.S. Absolutely. That's amazing. And good work for you guys. And something that in the U.S. hardly anybody pays attention to. I mean, it's and crazy. Again, I, yeah, but I think uh, that's that's the why it it the it FBI works. was able to move in. Yeah, I was on British primetime television a couple of weeks ago when um, the FBI had done this announcement and and moved in and done the dawn raid in Switzerland and, and and arrested these guys. And I said, you know what? If I was a police detective in New Scotland Yard. I'd be going home tonight, making myself a cup of tea and staring at myself in the mirror and going, why did it take the Americans to do this? Hmm. Now, <laughs> being yeah. the English, they weren't all that happy with my saying that. But it's true. You know, European police knew for years what the FBI was able to show. Um, they knew there was corruption going on in high ranks of FIFA. Uh, and uh, they didn't act. And it took the Americans to come in with that get-up-and-go attitude of America. And this is a Canadian speaking. I, I think that was the best of your country. I think you guys should be extremely proud right. of your people. Well, I think that's that's great. I mean, really, it is because I, I I sat there and I thought, wow, it's so strange. But then it's also – it was interesting, too, that the um, – when the Americans got involved in the bribe scandal of the Olympics, it also yes. kind of hit the fan again. And it, it just seems like Absolutely. there's just a theme there where I, I always just assumed that international business had different rules. You know, bribing somebody international on an international level is probably more acceptable than 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 we would allow it to be in the United States. So is it is it a cultural thing? Is it just that or is it just crime? You know what, I, I, I think in this particular case, it's because soccer is popular in the U.S., but it's not, it's not inculcated in your cultural DNA yeah. at this moment. Yeah. So people are like, yeah, yeah, great, soccer, you know, very happy the ladies are doing well at the Women's World Cup. Yeah, we support our men's team, but it's not like the NFL or NBA or Major League Baseball, where, where, where it's a, a passionate part of your culture. And, and so I think that was to your advantage. You know, FIFA could not threaten an American politician. They could not say to you guys, hey, if you don't stop this investigation, we're going to ban you from international sport. Right. And, and you know, again, I want to take this out of the, the, the jokey, jokey yeah. uh, uh, talk. Let me give you an example. Uh, last uh, November, uh, one of my Greek colleagues, a basket journalist in Greece, who would be doing investigations into match-fixing and corruption in Greek soccer, stepped out of his apartment, Two guys armed with iron bars beat the guy into a coma. Ugh. There have been murders. There have been a series of suicides. Uh, you know, we're talking about serious crime here. And, and there's kind of an image laundering going on into all this crime because it's associated with sport. People are like, oh, cool, you know, sport. And sport in some way cleans up the mm-hmm. crime. Sure. So let's make no mistake about it. This is crime. This is really deep, deep, awful crime. Is it's such an interesting um, thought that there could be uh, World Cup winners, for example, that really weren't the best team, but because of um, fixing that, in the end, the best team didn't win. I, I'm not sure about that. Okay. Uh, you know, there's 64 games played at a World Cup soccer tournament. And I, I, I would say only one or two of them have ever been, in each tournament, have been affected. Yeah. Um, 
most of the most of the top teams pay their players well. Uh, the Americans, for example, the American players a number of years ago went on strike, said we're not going to play anymore for the international our international team until we get compensated properly. Uh, you know, fly into a place like to Gucci Galpa, we play in these, you know, these, you know, like amazingly violent stadiums where people are screaming down with gringos. You know, we we put up with the stuff because we're proud Americans, right? And you're not paying us properly. And and the American team wasn't alone. Many many of these national soccer teams rip off exploit the players because as you know to go back to our, our point about FIFA. There are lots of bad, corrupt people in these national soccer federations. They're ripping off their players. And so the fixers are coming to these guys and saying, here, take the cash. But the, it, it doesn't happen. It's not, again, it's not the majority of the World Cup games. You're not getting yeah. to the final for a series of fixed matches. You may only play in one fixed match. And as a player, you would have no idea that the other team their players on the other team that aren't playing hard. Hmm. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Declan Hill, who's the author of the book, The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime. Uh, He's done some immense research, really, in a very dangerous way uh, by, I guess, you know, somehow getting himself into gangs that are... The full full story of that, Matt, is in the book, How I Get In. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's you're risking your life, Declan. That's crazy. But cool for Uh, the rest of us. Talk about, well, I was going to say, just talk about what you keep saying we need to be careful in the United States to not let these kind of gambling and illegal enterprises get a toehold into the, into our, into our sporting events or our sporting contests. What, what would you suggest we do? How do we, how do we protect ourselves? I'd say take a leaf out of the Afghani book. Uh, The Afghanistan, as, as you guys know, um, you know, like Canada, you, you, you've been serving military mission there for a long time. Yeah. There's something called a loya herga, which is where you get a huge tent, basically, and you get every, quote, stakeholder that's got a, got a, uh, you know, a stake in a particular problem into that tent. And then they just talk for weeks until they come up with solutions. And, and here are a couple of solutions. One is, and this is going to strike people as really weird, but consider legalizing gambling. Because once you legalize gambling, you can read the gambling odds much more easily. There are now companies set up around the world that monitor those odds for fixing, for, you know, to to check if anything bad has happened. So there was just, you know, literally three days ago, there was a game in China. Uh, uh, You know, there's a billion dollar league, soccer league in China, and they could see the odd movements in one of the particular games just didn't make any sense. And so they called in their cops and they investigated whether there's fixing going on. Oh, interesting. Two, yeah. set up a, 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 a special bureau inside either the FBI or, uh, you know, a large cop things. Because what happens is you got a fixing situation going on in, say, Taiwanese baseball or whatever. You go to the cops and they have no clue what's going on. Yeah. They're like, what? Like, yeah, look, I'm dealing with drug guys. Can you just back off? Like... So you want somebody who understands how serious it is, why it's serious, you know, that it's dealing with millions of dollars potentially and washing uh, the cash of drug dealers, whatever. So you don't have to go back to zero every time you walk into a cop shop. So just set up that integrity, set up three or four uh, special people in the United States, and then every major sports league from the NCAA upwards should have a whistleblower protection uh, place put in put in place. So 
if a young player is approached to fix a game either by his colleagues or by his uh, you know his teammates or by the owner or some mafiosi guy comes in yeah he's got uh, a secret anonymous uh, whistleblowing hotline that he can phone. It's outside of the NCAA. It's it's a completely separate organization. And he can say, look, I've just been approached by this guy. I was in a bar. He seemed to be making these jokes, but like he just creeped me out. I don't know what to do. You know, I, I don't want to scare anyone, but he says my coach is receiving cash as well. What do I do? So you just have those whistleblower hotlines. You have that protection. And and uh, you can win this battle. I, I believe yeah. that we can beat this battle back. But these are some simple, simple stuff that can be done. I love that. I mean, that, they're very basic, aren't they? But And, and do, do you sense that that just – do you sense we've already lost Asia and other areas? Oh, yes. They just can't yes. – you can't go back. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. Well, why would you watch a Chinese soccer game? Right. If you know, if you know it's just... 90% of them are fixed. It's, it's not that you know that 90% of them are fixed. It's that you know there's a lot of fixing going on. Mm. So some guy scores a hat trick. He, he runs down the field, scores an amazing goal. And you're standing in the stadium and you're like, is that for real? <laughs> and as soon as you've got that question yeah. in your mind, Matt, it's over. your sport is killed. It's true, huh? As soon as, the, as soon as the audience, the spectators are going, you know what? I can't actually believe this. This is about the credibility of the game. It's not about necessarily whether the fix occurred or didn't occur. It's they just think that it occurred. Mm. I mean, how sad is that? I mean, to, to have that happen in the United States would be horrible. I know, guys, uh, like, like, protect yourself now. Yeah. The, the reason why you haven't, uh, why you haven't had major scandals is one, nobody's been looking for them, and two, the globalized sports gambling market has not been interested in your sports. Mm-hmm. NFL is huge in the United States. It's not relatively all that big around the world. Yeah. Um, once it comes, you know, it's a very attractive product, as everybody who's listening to us knows. Once American sports get caught on around the world, you're going to face these problems in a major, major way if you're unprepared. So prepare yourself now. Well, that's, I think it's great advice. Uh, Dr. Declan Hill, thank you so much. And thanks for your great uh, research and just your professionalism. I think you're, you're making oh, a huge Matt, difference. Thanks. Again, Thank you so much, man. Thanks for having me on. I very much appreciate it. You bet. And we recommend to everybody, go check out that book, The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime. You can also go to Declan Hill's website, DeclanHill.com, D-E-C-L-A-N-H-I-L-L.com. Declan Hill. And just learn all about his investigative journalism work and um, his academic work as well. A high level of quality. It's it's rare that you see that. Uh, in the sports world, such incredible uh, journalistic and academic uh, credentials as well. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back and continue this discussion of uh, cheating. A little Coach's Corner up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. A little coach's corner for you here. Uh, when it comes to cheating, we've been talking about international sports and FIFA, for example, and the, the level of cheating there. Also, um, we've seen it in the Olympic scandals. We've seen it uh, even locally. I mean, not locally, but on a, on a more um, kind of in-your-face level. Uh, Pete Rose was has basically just admitted that he actually did bet on 
games while in the pros, but not his games apparently. But, you know, cheating. From Deflate Gate, some will just say that's not a big deal. Our last guest, Dr. Declan Hill, is like, there's a difference between cheating to win versus cheating to lose. Uh, cheating to lose is is an epidemic uh, where they're actually basically fixing games worldwide. But where does this begin, and and where does it? Where do we take it for our kids? Um, it's I see a lot of situations where even in little league sports, it's a win kind of at all costs, and so you can win the game and lose your character. Right? You can also lose the game and gain character. Character is probably the thing I'd end up focusing more on when it uh, when it, with my kids is start teaching your kids about in the end everything we do when it comes to sports is gonna is going to increase our character or de- decrease our character and and we probably need to watch out because um, kids at seven eight nine they might be fibbing or lying or cheating for different reasons than you as an adult might be interpreting. You know, they might be doing it because they just really like to win. They might be doing it because uh, they didn't, you know, know it was that big of a deal. So be careful calling your kid a cheater. Be careful calling your child a liar. Uh, labels aren't always going to help. You know, in the end, it's it's got to be more than just a label. You, we've got to be teaching our kids and trying to understand what's really going on. You might want to find out why they do what they do. I've seen kids cheat to, you know, win Scrabble. Or just other games, just because they're seriously competitive. But you might want to also build a relationship with your kids where we're we're talking about some of these bigger issues. Talk about Lance Armstrong. Talk about um, winning at all costs, and you know the Machiavellian way of you know the ends justify the means. If you believe that as a parent, that it's okay as long as your kid can get a scholarship, you can break a few of the rules, can't you? It's a really intense thing, and and the more I work with athletes, and um, especially athletes that have had a lot of talent that has taken them to another level, the more I realize that these people haven't lived a normal life. A lot of athletes I work with that are even professional or even Olympic athletes, they a lot of times have never been told no. They've never heard no. They have always been able to be winning, and if as long as you're winning, no is not going to be in your vocabulary. So watch out, because sometimes we might be esteeming sports and and athletics at a higher level than even character and, and development and growth. So don't assume, just because your boy is playing sports, that uh, they're just learning good character. You probably need to make sure you talk about it. Uh, if you see a kid throw their bat because they just struck out, that's probably something that needs to be discussed. We've got to teach our kids to win gracefully, to lose gracefully, and um, not just, you know, ah, he's just a boy, he's super competitive. No, at some point, show some character and, and teach that character. I think the, one of the best ways to do it is basically demand it. Like, tell your kids, this is how we are. Pull them out of the game. Don't let them play if you see them throwing the bat. Don't let them play if you see them do something dirty or a penalty on the field. And I think if we teach it to them early and we don't just keep justifying bad behavior by boys will be boys, 
then then you might be able to take it somewhere. Um, I also would focus more on when they're doing something right than when they're doing something wrong. Don't just try to catch your child doing something wrong. Start noticing when they're actually showing good sportsmanship, when they're act- when they are walking back after a strikeout and doing it effectively. That's such a great skill, and the best way I've ever found to actually teach it is to see when it's happening. Uh, get into your kids, find out why they might be lying. Have a chance to talk to them after every game. Talk about what happened there. Hey, I noticed you threw your bat when you got in the dugout. Uh, what's that about? And then go back to our, our discussion of principles and character. Um, keep your cool. If you end up having a beat down and because your child did strike out, if you end up making a big deal about that, you are going to be creating pressure, and that pressure might be the reason they have to they feel compelled to cheat or to do something wrong. Anyway, folks, it's it's parenting as well. And it, it sounds like, according to Declan Hill, our, the interview that we had earlier, you know, the United States has a really great benefit here where we're not as caught up in some of these international cheating scandals. But uh, if we're not careful, we probably could be. So let's, let's, let's cut it off and let's start teaching, teaching our kids. Start with character, integrity, and model it for our kids. Don't just ask our kids to have it. You model it as their parents. That's our number one, Coach's Corner. We're done. We'll take a break. Come back next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. I'm your coach. Doing what we can on this show to help give you the tools you need to grow a healthier, happier life. For you and your family, again, we can't live it for you, but we would love to give you the insight that you need. Do you have anybody in your life that just doesn't get the rules? They just don't get the boundaries. You know, maybe it's somebody in your neighborhood that uh, is constantly calling at the wrong time or coming over, needing help. They just keep crossing the boundary. There are boundaries in our world, and Some people just don't quite get it. And so on our show today, we're going to be talking with Christine Hammond, who is a licensed mental health counselor and author of the book, The Exhausted Woman's Handbook. She's going to be on the line with us to help us uh, understand some tools, some rules for setting boundaries. It really, um, if you you don't set a boundary with somebody and they keep uh, crossing the boundary, you can be as mad as you want and you can blame them and, and, you know get down on them. But the reality is, it's your job to have the boundary. It's your job to give the feedback. And a lot of us, I think, are just too afraid to say what needs to be said, uh, especially when it needs to be said. We, we don't want to offend somebody. So instead of offending them, we don't say anything. And apparently, there seems to be no boundary set. So we'll be working with that. Uh, again, at work, this is at home, this is everywhere in your life. People around you need to kind of know what your limits are. What you you know what you will handle and take and what you won't. So we'll be getting into that. Uh, also, um, we're going to be also doing some more coaches' corners. And 
when we when we do the show, one of the things I always think is, okay, is this is this going to be something that I, I need to learn? So whenever we're talking on the show about a subject, don't just think I'm just throwing it out there for you. Half of almost everything, pretty much, that we're doing on the show, I need help with, boundaries included. So um, everything we do is is really to help you create a healthier, happier um, life, a healthier, happier opportunity to create more in your life. So before we move on, though, let's go to our headlines and talk and hear from uh, Kathy Aiken. Tornadoes swept across the Midwest overnight, and millions of people will be under threat of more severe thunderstorms today. In South Dakota, winds of over 120 miles per hour were recorded, and baseball-sized hail fell in Indiana. Thirteen tornadoes reportedly damaged areas in four states, leaving thousands without power. The storm system is moving northeast today, with possible tornadoes stretching from New England back to the Ohio Valley. After the deadly shooting in South Carolina last week, prominent state leaders are calling for the Confederate flag to be removed from state property. Governor Nikki Haley and Senators Tim Scott and Lindsey Graham, all Republican, have voiced their support for the removal. Here's Senator Graham. Now, after the shooting, there's just no way to keep the flag. I think it's a roadblock to our future. Put it in a museum, move forward. Walmart has even begun removing all Confederate flag merchandise from its shelves. Items believed to be from the two New York prison escapees have been sent to labs for DNA testing. Police want to determine if the items found in a remote cabin are linked to the men. The manhunt has been going on now for two and a half weeks. Sean Diddy Combs is in legal trouble. The hip-hop mogul was arrested and jailed yesterday on suspicion of assault with a deadly weapon, a kettlebell. The assault reportedly took place at UCLA's Athletic Training Center. Diddy's son is on the Bruins football team. Fox Sports reports the alleged victim was the team's strength and conditioning coach. No one was seriously injured. The U.S. women's soccer team beat Columbia last night 2-0 off goals by Alex Morgan and Carly Lloyd. The women now face China in the quarterfinals on Friday. Pete Rose reportedly bet on baseball as a player, according to ESPN. Rose was banned from baseball after it was found he bet on games as a manager, but the new report says he also placed bets as a player manager in 1986. The report said there was no evidence he bet against his team. Tom Brady gets his day in court today as NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell hears both sides of the deflate gate controversy. Brady has said he had no knowledge of footballs being deflated in a game this past season, but the Wells report says says otherwise. Brady has been suspended for the first four games of this upcoming season, so that's what he's appealing today. The hearing is expected to last no more than two days. And Matt, here's one you just have to put put in the record books, okay? A 35-year-old Australian woman spent four days in the hospital, and you'll never guess why. Oh, no. She was helping a friend move while wearing skinny jeans, (laughs) and all of the squatting that she had to do basically damaged her muscles. Those, the pants were so tight, they were cutting off the blood supply, and she lost <laughs> feeling in her lower legs. Doctors had to cut the jeans off. She damaged nerve fibers and even had to have an IV drip. What? Is that crazy? You know, Ben wears those jeans. I know. I was going to ask you him, just, him? You know, if he's had any issues. Well, he was walking like a penguin yesterday. Exactly. And so he just said he moved into his apartment. So. You know, these skinny jeans, sometimes you try them on and you're like, how? You know what? I've how never tried on a skinny on? jean in my life. Yeah, good. You're, you'll be glad you, you haven't had but to But a skinny, that. I mean, uh, you're going to lose your leg... Uh, you're gonna lose. You're gonna have nerve damage because of your skinny jeans. <laughs> yes. And four days in the hospital, IV drip. Yeah, uh, wow, that's crazy. crazy. I've seen like 
we've uh, we've had our piano bench damaged because of like bejeweled jeans. Oh, you know yeah, those that ones that a, have all yeah, the scratch the wood. Yeah. yeah, on the back pockets. So yeah. So I. <laughs> so Ben, are you learning, buddy? You can't wear the skinny jeans. You can't. Well, I was I was wondering why my legs felt so weird. Yeah, well, the tingly sensation—that's yeah. the. He yeah. kept coming up saying, "Matt, my legs away. are tingling," and I'm like, "Well, maybe if you got some jeans that fit, <laughs> that might work better for you." But oh so the moral of the story: if they don't fit, you must, you must quit. quit. You must, must quit, quit moving wearing people. jeans. <laughs> if they don't fit, get a bigger pair for heaven's sake. There you go. Just, just all you need is a couple sizes bigger, and don't get the low cut jeans. Because that you know the because things yeah just a bunch of stuff fall out of those. <laughs> it's just not helpful. I don't want to go there. Don't go yeah. there. Can you imagine her medical bills? Yeah. Okay. Hey, honey. Cause um, of injury. Yeah. Cause of injury. Uh, the gap. <laughs> <laughs> the gap. Low cut. Uh, what do they call them? Skinny jeans. Man alive. That's a problem I will never have. I can't. If I can't walk in them, I'm not wearing them. For heaven's sakes. Oh man, boundaries. It's such an interesting thing. We we as we talk about just the news, as we heard the news, Sean Diddy Combs' son beats allegedly someone up with a kettle barbell thing. Uh wait. Uh Pete Rose, Tom Brady, these are all boundaries. These are people that aren't stopping where they're supposed to stop. There's a limit, and you're supposed to learn to stay within the limit. And I get it. Okay, those are all sports examples. But think in your life, in your neighborhood, are there people that just don't get the boundaries? They they do improper things. They say improper things. They're constantly uh, pushing the level of you know what's appropriate, what's not. We all have people like that in our life, and we wanted to help you address that today. We are going to take a break. When we come back, though, we'll be speaking with Christine Hammond, who is an author, and uh, she's the author of the book called The Exhausted Woman's Handbook, and she's here to discuss her tips for setting boundaries. If you don't set boundaries, you are going to wear yourself out because the people around you are just going to keep coming in and hitting down on you and making your life more difficult it's a tough thing, and you got to be strong enough to set the limits. And once you've set the limits, they, they could actually save you from a lot of the energy loss that, uh, that you might be suffering from. We'll take a break. Come back. We're discussing boundaries up next on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Do you have people in your life who push and push past boundaries? I'm not talking about, you know, older than your four-year-old who just doesn't want uh, to stop at one dessert. I'm not talking about those boundaries. When it's a situation at work or within your neighborhood or maybe even in your own family, what is the best way to set boundaries and deal with people who are just difficult? Joining us now is Christine Hammond, a licensed mental health counselor and author of the book, The Exhausted Women's Handbook. She's here to help us discuss setting boundaries. Christine, welcome to the program. Thank you, Matt. Great to have you on the show. And uh, first of all, teach us about what is a boundary, because we use we throw the word out, It's um, but, but a lot of us right. may not know exactly what it means. 
the way I like to describe a boundary is uh, just by looking at your own body. You can look at your own skin. The way we were made and designed was that all of our organs and our veins and our muscles would be protected by something called skin. Yeah. And that is a boundary that we have so that we don't get infection, we don't die of disease, um, we don't um, wind up with uh, certain kinds of cancer or illness. And that's all a boundary really is, is it is a protection for you, for the most inner parts of you. Hmm. That's a, it really is a great, uh, it's a great example because otherwise all of our innards would be <laughs> moving all over the place. We need something exactly to contain right. us, right? And, right. And, so, and in our real world, um, a boundary then would be kind of a rule, uh, a line between where my life and choice begins and another's ends. That's exactly right. And and your rule might be different than mine. Right. Uh, depending on who you are, where you have come from, what your past experience is. So there's no hard, fast rules for what a boundary is supposed to look like. It just has to be consistent with who you are so that uh, you don't overextend yourself. And uh, some people not knowing... I mean, I've seen people actually absorb other people's identities. You know, in married couples, a husband might just kind of absorb his wife as just an extension of him. Right. And so if you don't have a boundary, then you don't always know where you end and others begin. You don't know even maybe who you are. That, that's exactly right. And, and I've seen mothers do it with their own children, where they absorb their identities of their children or the success of their children as if it's their own. And, and that kind of steals something away from the kid's accomplishment and from what they have done. Hmm. The problem with that is then you lose sight of how you were created. And we're all created differently and all created uniquely with our own purpose. We're not designed to be all mushed together right. in one big, huge pile. And it seems like um, if if somebody like at work is doesn't have boundaries, doesn't know you know what's right, what's wrong, what's healthy, what's not, mm-hmm. they might you know they might always want your attention. They might always want your focus. They might even do it at the expense of their own job or your own job. So so help us help us in understanding how we go about setting boundaries with let's say difficult people in our lives those that are encroaching too much in on us. Right. And it it's important to understand what your definition of a difficult person is. Yeah. Um, For instance, some people have a low tolerance for lying. Other people have a low tolerance for manipulation. Uh, And and each person has their own low tolerance for. So my low tolerance might not be yours. So you have to start by knowing yourself really well in order to be able to establish a boundary. So let's just, for an argument's sake, that um, I have a low tolerance for lying. Uh, then that would mean that a boundary I might set in in accordance with that would be something along the lines of, if you lie to me once, I can forgive you, but lie to me twice, I, I'm not I'm not going to be as easily. Hmm. I might forgive you, but I'm not going to be as accepting of what you might say going forward. Yeah, and, and so we have to really know what what is important to us then, because. I mean, for some, you, that's such an interesting exactly. point. Lying is such a big deal for some, and for others, it's not like the governing principle of their life. That's exactly right. In in my profession, it is not uncommon for um, people to mi- try to mislead a counselor. So sure. lying is not high on my list. But it, 
but it is for a lot of other people because uh, that is a standard that they have set for themselves is honesty, and, and they expect that in themselves and therefore expect it in others. Is, is it because uh, that's where they were harmed? Like, it's almost where you're harmed the most is where you see you need the boundary the most. Sometimes that is exactly the case, and sometimes it's upbringing, too. Yeah. Um, you know, the religious groups that you grow up in, the circles that you travel in. It could be um, your socioeconomic area that you grew up in. So there are a lot of different factors that play into that mix. Okay. that's. I mean, it really is. and it's. But no matter what, it's, it's obviously, whether it came just through how you were raised or how you have experienced life, Whatever, like lying or, um, you know, I guess integrity or space, uh, personal space, those are things that you you need to differentiate and and have a kind of a rule set on. Right. A boundary. Right. So once you realize what your own limitations are, what you have a low tolerance for, then you can start establishing a boundary that's in agreement with that. And... um, so in the workplace scenario, uh, if you were at work and you were dealing with somebody who you repeatedly asked to do an assignment um, and they keep telling you that it's done when it's really not done, um, then there would be boundaries. And sometimes those boundaries are set up in the workplace environment already. Uh, there's probationary periods and things like that. Um, but sometimes they're not set up and they're not hard, fast rules. So. So you have to start to develop your own based on what you can and can't tolerate. And the idea is that by setting boundaries, you reduce the amount of frustration that you bring to each one of those environments. Because if you don't have a boundary, then that's what causes the frustration, anxiety, um, sometimes intense anger, uh, overreaction to things. And, and then that leaves you in the, in the worst position, not the person who might be overstepping a line. Mm. Cause, because if I don't have the rules and the boundaries for my issues, then I just, I just probably keep getting more angry, more frustrated, more fight, more flight, more all of these things that, uh, that make it so I am the one that is the the what do we call it like the shock absorber instead yeah. of allowing the other to have the shock absorbing issue yeah you you actually wind up looking like the crazy person yeah. in the scenario isn't that such a, okay so let's go to an example okay let's use okay. an example of let's say we have a spouse that is uh looking at pornography something that okay. we don't believe in it's against our value system right. we we've never espoused that we've we it's always been part of who we are we catch them doing that um we, I guess then we address that this is something that isn't a, a healthy boundary. How, how do right. we go then about setting down the boundaries and managing that? Well, that's, that's a great example because it is unfortunately all too common. Yeah. And, um, and one of the boundaries that I encourage people to make after they, and this is after they have confronted, and there has to be some kind of agreement that, um, yes, we are going to live by certain rules or certain standards. And that's an essential element all by itself because you can't have one person trying to enforce something that somebody else doesn't agree to, yeah. um, especially in a marital situation. There's got to be some level of agreement yes, this is wrong behavior, I'm not going to do this, I don't want to engage in it, I'm willing to be held accountable. And that, that's an essential element for moving forward. Um, so then a good example in this scenario would be um, perhaps um, there's some Internet filters or agreement that 
there are passwords that are going to be shared. Right. Um, there's some level of accountability. Usually, I like the accountability to be outside of marriage. So it, okay. it is a male using um, pornography. Then he would have an, a male accountability partner outside of the marriage so the wife doesn't have to engage in that over and over Like a pastor or a, a program he could go Absolutely. to. Absolutely. Or a friend. Yeah. There's any one of a number of great people that um, usually can come alongside. There are a lot of support groups in this area that are available to people. Um, and, and taking it outside of the marriage then then allows the healing process to start to begin. Because if the wife constantly feels like she has to look over her shoulders all the time, is constantly questioning, then that creates anxiety all by itself. Yeah. Um, and that can become a, a very dangerous spiral in the marriage. There's resentment that starts to develop. There's um, integrity issues. There's constant questioning. And, and that's completely unnecessary. It doesn't need to be in the middle of their marriage. Right. So I usually like that to be handled outside. And then, and then you you set those boundaries. We we agree upon those. Mm-hmm. There's some form of accountability. If Correct. I guess if we if it happens again, that's exactly right. If it happens again, there's an agreement. This is what we're going to do. If it happens again, we have to intensify then the treatment. So perhaps now we have to go to a counselor. Um, there's um, programs that are available to people um, in order to overcome this. Uh, so there's a lot of other things that are available. Again, once more, it's outside of the marriage. Yeah. It's not within the confines of the marriage. It really is just – it's having the discussions and really – I always call it tying them down, tying down and making them real uh, What's what we're going to do because of it. Because otherwise these things just seem to float away. And then you yeah. know, six months later when we catch them again, we don't even remember what we had agreed on. Well – and part of that process sometimes is actually writing it down. Yeah. So you kind of write down a contract of agreement. And um, when I have clients that I walk this through, I, I take notes, of course. Yeah. I'm supposed to take notes. But but in my notes, I say we agree to, and then I, you know, fill in the blank of whatever we agree to. And then I become their accountability going forward. And, and I check in on them to make sure that they're okay. But then we have a record of it that either one of them can come back to and say, what did we agree to on this yeah, day? What was that? Yeah. Back through my notes and say, this is what we agree to. That's great. I mean, yeah. it really, it's very and basic. Party, right? Yeah. So I, I have no bias one way or the other between the two of them, um, which is why, because you can't just say, okay, well, I'll put it in my phone. And, yeah. and then the other person says, well, I didn't agree to that. And it, <laughs> they just go back and forth, you know? Oh, yeah. And, and then, then we end up arguing about what we agreed to instead right. of actually making progress. We're speaking right. with Christine Hammond uh, from growwithchristine.com, which is a great website you ought to go check out about just different tools, products, and services, information that she offers there. She's got some great blogs there as well. We're discussing boundaries and how to set boundaries with people that are difficult or on, on difficult subjects. We'll continue this discussion after this break. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. On BYU Radio. To call the show, dial 1 855 CHAT BYU. Now, here is your host, Dr. Matt Townsend. 
Welcome back, friends. We are discussing boundaries and how to set boundaries with difficult people or on difficult issues. Christine Hammond is joining us. And uh, Christine is from the website growwithchristine.com. She also uh, wrote an article with uh, psychcentral.com on how to establish boundaries with difficult people. Christine Hammond, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Great to have you here. And uh, as a licensed mental health counselor, I'm sure you end up looking at and, and helping people set boundaries all the time. Yes, that's my everyday. That's your moneymaker, isn't it? It is. <laughs> it really, it's a, it's a really important skill. And it, I think a lot of us are, are afraid to push back on others. And instead, we just keep dealing with the effects of their lack of boundaries. And it wears us out. It exhausts us. It does. That, that is one of the main reasons for exhaustion is, um, not establishing proper boundaries in due time and not setting appropriate expectations in accordance with those boundaries. Mm. It creates unbelievable levels of exhaustion in clients that are completely unnecessary and totally avoidable. Oh, I mean, I can just see it. And I see it with my own clients. I mean, so some of these difficult people are people that are that react in anger. They're very defensive. Correct. These are people that... Uh, you know, might lie when they're confronted, or they might be the ones that tend to withdraw a lot. Talk, give us some more ideas on what else we could be doing with these people as far as boundaries are concerned. Right. I want to add just one more to the list that's yeah. often overlooked, which is passive aggressive, mm. um, because those are what I call the hidden frustrators. They they look right at you and say yes, 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 I agree, and then they do nothing on the back end. Yeah. Um, and so they they are probably the most frustrating of all of the group because they appear to want to do the right thing but then fail to do so. Um, so a setting boundaries with somebody in those realms is a little bit more challenging than setting boundaries with what I would call, um, you know, your family, your um, friends, people that you would be close to. And the reason for that is they don't accept boundaries. They will understand that you will place a boundary, and their whole goal in life is to jump right over it, to push that boundary further than what you say it needs to be, to um, force you to cave in on that issue. They actually like doing that Mm. and look forward to doing that. So the challenging part about difficult people is not in setting the boundaries. It's maintaining the boundaries. Yeah, because they're going to continually want to change them and move them, which is why your ability to set it and, and you know, let it stick. And, and I always just say, tie it down so it stays. Uh, right. it's, it's essential, isn't it? It absolutely is, which goes back to what we talked about earlier of knowing yourself, knowing what your own limitations are and what you can and can't do. Um, because if you don't know that element of it, then it was so easy for somebody to push you way further past where you would like to be. You you really have to you have to take the initiative. You can't just allow the more the more dominant or strong, ineffectively strong person to lead here because they they will always lead you to the same hole. That, that's right? exactly right. I, I like to remind people that no game is ever won by playing good defense. Yeah, you actually have to play offensively in order to win a game. And and while this might not want to feel like a game to you, it probably is a game to the other person. Yeah. 
So you have to be good at playing an offensive game, not just a defensive game. I love that example because so many of us would rather just, you know, kind of defend it, just try not to be hurt by it, but it just keeps us stuck versus, you know, starting to recognize, and a lot of what you're talking about here are just patterns. We need to see the pattern that they're playing. And in sports, that's that's what's the key. As soon as a team coach or whatever can see the pattern that's going on in the first half, you'll usually see a correction by the team by the second half. Exactly. And if they fail to see it, then they're not doing a good job. Right, yeah. But, duh. The same thing is true in our own lives, <laughs> yeah. right? But somehow we think that that just applies to sports and not to our life, when it doesn't. Yeah, but you use the word of offense, but that's offensive. We don't want to be offensive, Christine. We don't want to... We we just yeah. we we don't want to seem like we're rude, or we don't want to nag, or we don't want to be mean. I you know I get that a lot from people, yeah. and um, and especially um, from Christians who feel like somehow it's not biblical to be um, on the offense. Um, but if you look at Scripture and you go back to what Jesus did and how he confronted the Pharisees, he was very offensive. Yeah, he took it and on. He was. Yes, absolutely. And he was very direct and didn't have any point in um, drawing a very clear line with what was acceptable and what was not acceptable. And even if he couldn't control them, he still had his limit. And he, he sometimes even knew when to shut up in a healthy way and when to be aggressive. He, he, absolutely. He, but it probably came because he simply knew his limit, his boundary. Yeah, he knew his and he knew theirs. Yeah. And we don't have the clear vision that Jesus has. Right. So we just have to use his example and and be prepared with being able to do both. So part of what you suggest we do is actually, once we kind of know our boundaries, our limits, we need to go in and figure out what's going on with them. Like, why are they thinking the way they think and listen to what they're saying? Exactly. Um, Listening to what they're saying, uh, trying to walk in their shoes for just a little bit to see what perspective they might be coming from, being willing to acknowledge that um, not everybody plays by the same set of rules. Even though they might come from the same background, that doesn't mean that they agree with everything you agree with. So you can't take that for granted just because you come from the same background. You really have to spend some time observing and watching a person to see, okay, what are their behavioral patterns? What does it look like? And then you can make judgments about how to handle yourself. I once had a client that um, that he really felt like he needed to to quit working with his partner. He was he just didn't think his partner um, would it was a healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, so okay, so why don't you just tell him that and be done? And he's like, oh, he'll freak out. He will totally freak out. And so I said, so you don't think he appreciates you and likes you, and yet if you want to leave, he'll freak out. And he's like, yeah. And so I said, well, why don't we just give him some data and then ask him what he thinks? Like, right. and, then, and then that's all he did is he just said, hey, I noticed you didn't uh, – I noticed when you went on vacation, you didn't leave, you know, whatever, the passcodes to get into whatever program. Uh and it really left me in a lurch. So why why would you not why would you not leave those numbers or those passwords with me? And then the guy went off on him for about thirty minutes. Mm-hmm. And he, I just said, I go when he goes off. I go, what will he say? And he goes, he'll just go off on me. So when he goes off on you, just listen. 
and then try to just reflect what you hear him saying and holding it back up for him to look at. And for about 30 minutes, the guy basically just made the noose that he was hanging himself with. And he just said, well, because last time I gave you the numbers, you blew this and you did this. And he just gave a list of how many ways that he thinks he's ineffective. And I say, now you'll have all of this information and it's out there because the guy brought it out. Then we can start getting real and discuss if we should even be together. Why would I? Why would you want to work with somebody you can't even leave your passcodes with? Exactly. That and, was excellent. But listening to him was the key, huh? You got it because if you cannot not communicate, if you listen to what's really going on, they're going to give you all you need to know. Well, and it's not just listening to the words they say. Yeah. It's listening to the body language as well. Yeah. Body language is one of my best indicators of, of how a person, what is going on with a person. So I look for all kinds of repetitive um, motions that a person might do um, from a body language standpoint. I look at how they even sit on my sofa yeah. um, and, and how, where they look away, where they pay attention, what they're focused on. Um, just about everything they can from a body language standpoint, if you put that in conjunction along with what they say, you get a much clearer picture of what is really important and what's not. It's the other so thing true. that's important to look for is what I call repetitive words. Um, so when a person is talking and they're speaking and, and they repeatedly say things like, uh, I feel guilty about, or, or, you know, that made me feel so guilty, then then there's something that needs to be paid attention to in that area. Mm-hmm. There's some level of guilt that's still gnawing at them or bothering them. So I look for repetitive words as well as repetitive motions. Interesting, because those are all tells. Those are things that will... They are. And, and you, need to un, you need that information to unhook the other problem. The, the problem, right. that, that makes it more real, too, because you're talking about the real issue. Then you can get to a real boundary on their real issue. That's exactly right. Uh, And sometimes even when you think you've made some progress and you've set and established a boundary based on the new information you've gathered, they still will want to push past it. And that's where you just got to dig your heels in the sand and say, I am not going to move past this point. And it can't be an aggressive way. That's where you kind of step back and you just very calmly, non-emotionally say, this is the line I have drawn. This is where it's going to be. You're not going to move me on this issue. Yeah, you call it firm and yet kind. Exactly. Be firm and, and and then hold your position. This is, and you could just state the principle behind it. This is, I think it's healthy to to be to not have be treated this way, and so I'm not going to stop on this. Exactly, and and if you can take the emotion out of it then your argument actually has more weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have the emotion in on it, you actually lose a little bit of ground with a person who is difficult. It's, it's true. They don't value emotion. They kind of value logic, even though if they're difficult, they're probably fairly emotional. That, that's exactly right. And that's the irony of the whole thing, because they will be very emotional, um, but in contrast, if you try to meet their emotion for emotion, they just emotion you up. Yeah. You know, they just do one more than you do. So you can't you can't do that. It's a losing game for you to play. So you've got to back all the way down and just be flat yeah. and, and non-emotional. And, and that's usually what is able to um, communicate more effectively with them. It seems like you, you have to be fairly realistic, right? Because... 
this person too, they may just be dysfunctional. They may just be yes. kind of broken. And so there is a point that logic won't work with somebody that's dysfunctional. So you, you kind of need correct. to know that and be and manage your expectation, right? That, that's exactly right. Which, if you have your own boundaries, even a dysfunctional person will not be able to get through it. Right. Especially if you stand firm. And that, that's the whole point. That goes all the way back to what we talked about in the beginning with having skin. And, and, and not allowing somebody to penetrate or get to your innermost being. So you have to know yourself, set a boundaries that are appropriate so that it's a protection even when this person pushes you a lot further than you think you can go. If you can stand still and stand firm and not let them penetrate your skin, you'll be fine. Mm. Again, we're speaking with Christine Hammond, who is the author of the book, The Exhausted Woman's Handbook, and, a, and she has a wonderful website, growwithchristine.com. Um, Christine, when you, when you think about it with, these, with the difficult people in our lives and setting these boundaries, I mean, I guess in the end, you're really only as good – I guess it's back to the sports metaphor – you're really only as good as your ability to implement the offense, Right. That's and exactly and do right. it. So a lot of this is up to your initiative. And what may happen, it seems like, is a lot of people may not have the willpower to keep doing it. If they've always if they've kind of been in a codependent relationship, they may not have grown their own strength to just keep going. Right. And it collapses in on them and they give up and then we go back to the old pattern again. Right, which is even more unhealthy now because now you've been broken down and now you feel defeated in some level of failure. But we often learn more from our failures than we do our successes. And, And so learning from where you broke down and what didn't work this time and then reestablishing a new boundary probably further back than where you set it before, is a much healthier way of going of handling the situation. Hmm. Does it? Um, I mean, and this just takes time too. So I guess so. Part of the expectation, it's we just we just do this over time, right? We just have to keep yes. doing it. Yes, this isn't a one-time fix. Yeah, I know. <laughs> never is, is it? <laughs> Especially when you're dealing with a difficult person, it, it is never a one-time fix. And and I have often found that. God repeatedly puts difficult people in our life until we finally get it right, yeah. and we finally learn how to deal with them. So, so just because you might figured out a way to escape from this person doesn't mean that there isn't another one around the corner. Right. So it's better to learn the lesson the first time than have to learn it ten more times down and, the road. And this isn't about controlling the difficult person. This is about setting yeah. your boundaries so you aren't as impacted by them. That's exactly right. So you're protected so yeah. that you have your skin and you are protected and you can walk away from having dealt with that person and still be grounded in what you believe in and who you are. Oh, I mean, it, it really, it's the definition of, of success, isn't it? Of effectiveness. It wow. Hey, as we wrap this up, what would you say, you know, if we, if we could just teach one idea that would make a, a big, big difference to somebody when you're dealing with a difficult person, what what is the one thing that is the big thing? The biggest thing for a person is to believe that they are capable of doing this. Because without that, all of this falls apart. And to believe that uh, they have a right to protect themselves and that there is nothing wrong with standing up for what you believe and for who you are and what your limitations are. There is nothing wrong with having limitations 
there is nothing wrong with acknowledging your own um, your your own set of responsibilities versus somebody else. It is about knowing who you are and being comfortable with you. Mm. That is such such great advice, isn't it? Uh, you've got to just believe. You got to believe and, and yeah. believe that you have this right to kind of stick up for yourself and to protect yourself, and almost a responsibility especially for those that you really care, to, to push back on them as well. Yes, and to set an example for your children. Yeah, good stuff. Christine Hammond, we appreciate you. Thank uh, you so much. Such great insight. Again, the author of the book, The Exhausted Woman's Handbook. You can get that on our website if you just go to the website to growwithchristine.com and uh, learn more about that and boundaries as well. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back to a little bit of the Coach's Corner Uh, I've got a great, one of my favorite quotes of all time coming up after the break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. To the Matt Townsend Show, a little coach's corner here. Um, you know, boundaries, whatever you want to call them, and a lot of people are like, blah, blah, blah. That's just a lot of gobbledygook from the uh, therapists of the world. But the reality is you are uh, you're an agent, right? You are a person that is supposed to be um, acting, not here to just be acted upon. Your job as a human being is to get out there and make something happen in your life. And if you want to just, you know, be let everybody else influence their will upon you and just run you over, then you can do that. But there's a consequence, I truly believe, when you are a human being on this earth and you give up your freedom to, to live your life. And I think you're just going to suffer because... Inside, deep inside every human being is a will, a willpower, and um, an, an intelligence, whatever you want to call it, a spirit that is there to to make something happen with your opportunities here on earth. Not necessarily going to be always easy, but it, whatever it is, it's yours. It's all yours. And you kind of need to know that. So if you have somebody in your life that is, you know, literally just overloading you, uh, overwhelming you, just over, you know, over empowering, over overpowering you. Um, you have a, you have a choice here. Now, if you don't see the choice, then you can't fix it. So part of this is starting to see the choices you have in life and don't always go with the first choice of, well, I just got to leave. I just can't take this anymore. I've got to leave. Well, if, if you can't take it anymore, leaving won't necessarily help you take it any better. So what I might work on before you leave is learning how to understand what's going on, learning how to make better choices about it, and learning how to change it. You just need to make one change, and you change everything. And I've seen that so many times. Just one partnership, one partner in a marriage, for example, can change the entire deal. I don't even need you to want to change. But if I change, you're going to have to change. If I decide to no longer get angry at you being angry at me, that's going to change the game. 
you you are now going to have to deal with me looking at you and just smiling like you are acting like a baby. If I don't react to it, if I don't throw the tantrum, if I don't run out and slam the door, and I just look at you and try to understand. So tell me what you're trying to do here and try to understand you. It's going to change the game. Two heads are better than one in a marriage, but one head is better than zero. And usually in, in these marriages where, or relationships where we have no boundaries, nobody's head is in the game. And when nobody's head's in the game, we just end up, you know, spinning and we let the most messed up of us lead the game. And we see that in policy, in government. We see that in so many different ways. One person in our country does something incredibly stupid, and then everyone reacts to it. And we could justify all of our reactions by, well, that was stupid. Well, yeah, so so was your reaction to what was stupid. And we can stop it. One of my favorite quotes, a quote I told you I'd be sharing with you, is a quote by Marianne Williamson. This is a quote that Nelson Mandela apparently um, quoted at his inaugural address, okay? This is a quote he used when he was inaugurated. He says, our greatest fear—this is from Marianne Williamson—it is not light. uh, Our greatest fear is light, not our darkness that most frightens us. He says, our our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in every one of us. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Your greatest fear in life is not that you're a weak, pathetic clod. Your greatest fear is that you're powerful beyond measure, and you're so afraid of that that you don't do anything about it because that's too hard. You are amazing, talented, fabulous. Your job is to just go live like it. You are a being of infinite worth. So instead of us shrinking, because the minute I shrink— and don't take charge of my life, then I give permission for you to shrink and not take charge of your life. So I blame you for my problems, you blame me, and we both go down the drain together. Folks, uh, boundaries, it's not a bunch of gobbledygook. It's about you choosing to become a change in your life. So I challenge you as a coach, get out there, you become the change. Quit waiting for everyone else in the world to change for you. You become the change that you seek in the world. And when you do that, I'm telling you, you're going to find the peace. You will find the peace. That's the Coach's Corner and the end of hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. We'll come back next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Top of the morning to you. Welcome to the program, the show where we try to give you the tools, the ideas, 
the stuff you need to know to make the best decisions for your life, to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier, happier life. Welcome to the program, Dr. Matt here. Hey, uh, tragic news. Uh, The creator of the pink plastic lawn flamingo dies at 79 years old. Donald Featherstone was 79 years old. He created the pink plastic lawn flamingo way back in 1957 for a plastics company, Union Products, modeling it after a bird that he saw in the National Geographic. Millions of birds have been sold. I mean, honestly, they're they're iconic. They are the sign that you are either uh, over the age of 65 or you live somewhere down in um, Florida. Uh, anyway, powerful, um, little iconic. Isn't it interesting that one guy creates this iconic flamingo and they become, you know, a joke and fun and, ex- and just of interest to put on the front lawns of so many homes. Millions of the birds have been sold over the years and Featherstone worked for Union uh, uh, Products for 43 years, inventing hundreds of plastic products in that time. Eventually, he was uh, the president of the company before he retired in 1999. He uh, is, was married to his wife for 40 years, and they have four children, or two children, four grandchildren, two great-grandchildren. So, again, next time you see a pink flamingo, you know who to thank. Donald Featherstone, may he rest in peace. Uh, interesting stuff. Do you ever wonder what you're going to be remember, remembered for? I'm going to be remembered for the guy that can't shave uh, without cutting half of my chin off. Or as uh, Terry once said in a very rude way, one of my three chins. Um, so I'm down to two chins because I did it again. I don't know what it is. I, I think it's because I get so it's, – it's so early in the morning when I'm shaving that I don't even pay attention. I just That's start hacking it away. Cut. Is that really from shaving? Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. It looks like it's kind of a war injury, but it's not. It's just a shaving injury. You sure you had the light on? No, I, I shave. I shower and shave. I shave in the shower, and I basically have the lights out. But I don't look in the mirror anyway. I do it by feel. I do it by braille. I'm a braille shaver. It's just easier that way. I mean, I do it by feel, and I'm usually pretty good at it. Lately, I think the problem is is I don't always have the right razor. Mm-hmm. So I just used another razor that probably – I have a high-tech razor that vibrates and makes noise and does all this stuff. So you don't think your wife had used it previously, shaving no, her legs? No, I don't. Do be, no, because that would be crazy. <laughs> uh, and no, that never happens. And that and I don't because I would never use her. She apparently, I found out, uses mine and my. All everyone in my family uses my razor. You probably have the nice one. I have the nice one, and um, but maybe that's it. It's just that a makes big, a difference. It's just a big, you know. But if you want to lose one of your three chins. Uh, call me. I'll hook you up with that. Let's uh, go to our headlines now. Find out what Kathy Aiken's got for us. Many high-ranking officials are calling for the removal of the Confederate flag on state property in South Carolina. The state's governor, Nikki Haley, said it's time for the flag to go. It's time to move the flag from the Capitol grounds. This is a moment in which we could say that that flag, while an integral part of our past, does not represent the future of our great state. Republican Senators Lindsey Graham and Tim Scott have also voiced their approval for the flag to be taken down. This after nine worshipers were killed in a Charleston church last week by 21-year-old Dylan Roof. Roof reportedly said he wanted to start a race war. Mississippi's Republican Speaker of the House also wants the symbol removed from his state's flag. Meanwhile, Walmart announced yesterday it's removing any items from its stores and website that feature the controversial flag. Joy 
Joyce Mitchell, the woman charged with helping two men escape from a New York prison, reportedly smuggled some tools used in the escape by concealing them in frozen chunks of hamburger meat. Meanwhile, authorities continue to search for the men in a remote area 20 miles west of the prison after a cabin break-in was reported. According to reports, boots, bloody socks, and at least one set of fingerprints was found in the cabin. The items are now being tested for DNA. The Senate will hold a crucial vote today on whether or not to grant President Obama fast-track trade authority. Many of Obama's fellow Democrats have previously voted against the bill. If 60 senators vote its favor, it will likely pass the Senate tomorrow. Then it's on to the president's desk. In sports, New England Patriots quarterback Tom Brady is in New York today, appealing his four-game suspension for Deflategate. A new report out by ESPN says Pete Rose not only bet on baseball as a manager, but as a player as well. And the U.S. Women's World Cup team advanced to the quarterfinals after defeating Colombia last night 2-0. The U.S. will face China on Friday. And I should have talked to you before I had my last story because what? you beat me to the punch on the pink flamingo. Oh, did you do the pink flamingo? Yeah, story? I was going to do that, but you beat me to it. That's but isn't okay. that a great story? Yes. Did you have? I you look like the kind of person that never. would throw out some pink flamingos. Never. What do you mean never? Never. No. Really? Yeah. Those, Not at all. Those are kind of tacky to me. My, but, you know, I had a, a niece that went to um, Mississippi on her mission. She was an LDS missionary there, and when she came home, they put pink flamingos out because I guess everyone in That's Mississippi big down there, has huh? this. But yeah. they're, I think they're good looking. Do you? Yeah, I'm not. You know, it's to me, it's kind of like having plastic flowers out. It's just not. But I don't it's. Know. But would you rather? Okay, if you had to choose, would you rather have like a garden troll, or is that what they call them? A garden, garden, troll? Uh, garden gnome, a garden gnome, okay. or would you rather have a pink flamingo? Do I have to have one? Of yes, them? <laughs> you have to have one. Either a I garden think I'd do gnome, the gnome. You'd go with the gnome. I, I would. Yeah. Would you? Uh huh. <laughs> now, if you had to choose between a lawn jockey. You ever seen a lawn jockey? Like they're they're little jockeys, men, tiny, short little men that would like have a chain between two or three of them, and they'd be oh, out on the yes. okay. lawn. Ooh. Golf courses might even have them too. But um, would you rather have a lawn jockey or two or three if you had a whole chain, um, or would you rather just have a few pink flamingos? I think on that one, I do the pink flamingos. Now, You're not giving me very good options. Okay, here. I'm not. Now, what if you could have them all? For the low price of forty nine ninety five, three payments of forty nine ninety five. Would no, you be interested? Because I'm starting a new business <laughs> to get your lawn decked out. No, no. I prefer the nice. I, I love to plant just like perennials, a, just because oh. I don't have to worry about it every year. Oh, you like flowers? So, uh, yes, I'm more into color and nice, real things. But you'll live never, you'll, you'll never get a color like a pink flamingo out That's of true. a flower. That's There's true. just dozens. Maybe I exist. could hide it, you know, in some of the uh, seco lilies. Yeah, mm. put them in between that. Yes. Maybe hide them a little bit. See, you're going old school. If you really want style, classiness, <laughs> flamingos. Or lawn As long jockeys. as they're in the backyard and my neighbors don't see them, I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. I think if I, if I had all the money in the world, I'd buy dozens of them, thousands of them, and I'd just line my entire yard with them. Oh, I thought you were going to say you'd put them in their neighbor's yard and keep them out of yours. I would too. That's not yeah. a bad idea. That'd be a good, that'd be a good prank, Maybe actually. that's how you drive the neighbors away. Hey, start that. Start that as a prank, and no one knows who it is. I was and trying the next to drive. Person them. has to put it somewhere else and yeah. down the line. Well, see, I was trying to drive my neighbors away by just like not weeding my gardens. Well, then you rototill, and then you yeah. tear your two muscles. Yep. Don't bring that up. <laughs> That's my little secret. I'm going to hire you next time. I need. Don't that. you dare. Uh, if you do, I guarantee I'll just bring some plastic flamingos. <laughs> Good stuff, Kathy. Thank then. you, my friend.
Well done. We're going to take a break. And uh, when we come back, uh, our great uh, friend Heather Johnson's here. Hadge, we call her. She is the she is going to teach us how to get our children more active, how to be healthier. She's all things parenting and activity. Those two words best describe Heather Ann Johnson. She's on faculty here at Brigham Young University and uh, tries to give us some tools, some ideas with our kids. We'll take a break. Come back with Hadge. You're soaking in it right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, do you have any of your uh, little kids uh, staying home all summer? They're just bored. They're making food. They're eating. They wake. They sleep in, and they wake up later, and they just watch TV. And, and oh, it drives you crazy. You want to get them doing something. So we decided to ask our resident expert, Heather Ann Johnson, aka Hadge. Uh, she's she's the guru when it comes to um, your children. She is teaches here at Brigham Young University. She's an adjunct faculty member. Has done that for nearly twelve years. Also um, is does a lot of work on KSL Studio 5, and um, it, she's put together actually as a local producer and director for the Listen to Your Mother show, which is nationwide. She runs the Utah kind of the Utah contingent of that. I don't know what we call it, but go to her website as well, familyvolley.com, where she gives you a million, million great ideas on how to, uh, you know, be a healthier family Hadge, welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks. It's good to be here. It's good to have you. Where have you been? You know, I don't know. May was busy, wasn't it? It was really busy. It was busy. I, uh, I, and then June, I had to go get a tan in Cancun. So <laughs> that was also... That's a, a tough problem to have, isn't oh, it? Oh, it was horrible. Just miserable. And miserable. then, you know, my shaving problems and my rototilling problems. That there you, you go. Don't, we don't need to get into that. Okay. Hey, uh, how are you doing? Good. Um, no are, your, are your kids home? They're home. All of them. Are they, are they, what are they doing? I mean, are they messing stuff up? Well, are they You know, we're kind of trouble? at this point, you know, at the beginning of summer, there's all that excitement. Wow. And yeah. as parents, we're usually pretty excited to get them home. You bet. But about this point, you know, beginning of July, end of June, we, that excitement wears off yeah. a little bit. Do you ever wake up and just say, oh, you're still here? <laughs> you're still around? All yeah. five of you? It's so How'd weird. you get here? <laughs> Time to leave. <laughs> so today, let's address the fact that we're kind of in this point, at this point where, the kids are getting a little bored. We're getting a little tired. It's it's kind of tough, right? Yes. Yep. So it is not too late to make summer ideal for you and your family. It's not too late. It's not. It's not. Okay, good. So the first thing we're going to do is we are going to have very realistic expectations. And what I mean by that is we are going to stop trying to keep up with the Joneses. Good. Oh, I hate the Joneses. I know. They're miserable. And they put all this pressure on us. Yeah. And the Joneses usually means the media, right? right? Right. So especially as mothers at home, we sit there and we've got all this media around us telling us these amazing, unbelievable things that families are yeah. doing for the Yeah. If you're summer. a good parent, you'd take your kids to Disneyland every day. Yeah, that's right. Right, and then you hit the zoo at night, and then you hit the movies in the morning. <laughs> right, it's just never ending. Right, yeah. and there's craft projects every day, and there's all of these things that become so overwhelming that it destroys our ability to see what our children really need for the summer. That's great. And so we start to make really kind of 
uh, pressure-filled decisions mm-hmm. that we don't need to make. And that's not what summer's about. Like we think that we need to be busy and active and actually going out and spending money. Right. And the thing is, during the summer, our kids kind of need to know two things. They need to know that they're loved. And I know that they need that every single day. But every day is busy during the school year. And so what a great opportunity to bring them home and love them just yes. how they are right then. I like that. The other thing that they really need to have is a break from the stress they have yeah. every single day. Now we think, oh, I have a kindergartner. You know, how much stress They're really not is in stressed. kindergarten? But really interesting, when we look at studies, 41% of kids feel too much stress from too many obligations. Really? That's a huge number. Yeah, yeah. And these are kids, and we want them to feel like children right. and, and have a childhood. So that's kind of what we're back to. So stop keeping up with all of that. Turn your phone off and your computer off. For Forget about what your neighbors are doing. It doesn't matter if they do, you know, crafts every day. Who cares? We're coming back to ourselves. Right. So that's the first thing we have to do. Once we do that, though, we want to start setting some goals. And I know parents always say to me, oh, Heather, but, you know, goals are for the school year and goals are for my job. And. But goals are for the summer, too. Mm-hmm. So we're going to set up some very clear expectations. Now, this is what starts to happen. We don't realize that our kids have expectations for their summer break. Right. But they do. They do. They do. But should they? Because they're really just kids. They should. They absolutely. don't know what they're doing. They don't <laughs> we know don't care what they from think. Down, right? It doesn't matter. So, for example, our son, his expectations for summer break are to to really do nothing, to relax. Yeah. He's in seventh grade. He has extracurricular activities. He's got, you know, things from scouts and piano. So for him, when school is over, he really kind of just wants to chill veg. out yep. and veg, right? Now, our daughter is very different. She's a couple years younger than he is. She's almost 11. And her idea of summer break is to go, go, go. It's yeah. like, wait a second. I've waited all year. Now, now let me, you know, out. Let right, me do what right. I want to do and run around and ride my bike and go places and Now, the problem comes in that if we don't address their expectations, they go back to school and our son feels very unfulfilled because he never had a chance to just wind down. Yeah, never relaxed. Right. And our daughter feels the same way if she doesn't ever have a chance to get out and, you know, let her legs run and do those things she's waited to do. Now, at the same time, I have expectations. I know. That's the problem. Maybe it's I want the garage cleaned. (laughs) Maybe I want the stuff under their bed dug up. Yeah. Whatever it might be. Or maybe it's just that I don't want to have to drive our family every day all the time in the car and I want to sit in the backyard in a kiddie pool and hang out, whatever it is. So we don't take the time often to ask our kids, hey, what? What do you see happening for the next two and a half months? What do you want to do? What does this hmm. feel and look like for you? The problem when we don't is that they go back to school and they're so dissatisfied. It, it really causes more harm than good. Yeah. So take just a minute, sit down, and heaven forbid we ask them yeah. how they see things, right? Well, what do you want out of the summer? What's your goal? That's exactly right. What does this feel like to you? And so it's really important that we set those goals and make sure that we understand how all of our kids are going to see summer very differently. Because sometimes we'll put so much pressure on our kids because we have a goal and we really want them to have our goal be their right. goal. <laughs> right. And if they want to live, they better just have <laughs> adopt my goal. Right. Like our son, he needs to get his Eagle Scout this summer. Yeah, That's my right. goal, right? Yeah. It's not quite his goal yet, to be perfectly honest, That's right? That's right. Maybe halfway to his How goal. How old is he? He is 13. Okay. Then you know what you do? We tell him you can't ever leave the house. You say, do you want to be 14 or not? <laughs> you ever want to drive eagle. a car? That's, right. That's exactly right. You want to see daylight? I don't see if you, you want a cell phone someday. Right. You want to keep breathing? Right. 
then finish this. I mean, right? it's true. It sounds like it sounds tough. It sounds like you're. Well, it's hard love. Yeah, it's isn't tough it? It's just tough love. love. It's tough love. Yeah. So we want to not worry about what other people are doing, and then we want to come back to our family and look right at our kids, even our spouse, and say, "What? What do we envision these mm-hmm. next couple months?" And write it down. We know we've heard it a million times. When you write down your goals, they're more likely to happen. So write it down and decide how that's going to happen. Because all of a sudden, we're juggling a lot of different people's feelings, and you know, this is the same way when. When we look at marriages, it's that dissatisfaction yeah. that causes all that stress and turmoil because we haven't we haven't communicated well enough. About it's it. such a good idea. And then, I mean, you could write it down. You could make it a put it on the wall. Everybody Anything. could have their goals on the wall. Absolutely. So you can see what that looks like. Yeah. Now, from there, oftentimes what we abandon first is a routine. Especially as parents, we think, oh, I don't have to drive kids to school. Sleep mm-hmm. in all day. Go yeah. to bed whenever you want. Right. Find the food in the you know kitchen. Yeah. And it, we just get kind of lax is maybe a good word for that. And although there is some room for those types of exceptions, we want to be certain that we're keeping some sort of routine. Remember, routines create predictability in our children. Sure. When things are predictable, our children feel very safe and very stable. That stability then in turn creates a child who is much more likely to obey, who has you know better habits and attitudes. So when we are out doing those activities, we've got happy kids because we've kept a routine. So things like bedtime, you know, yeah, a little bit later or sometimes during the week there. Mm-hmm. But keep bedtimes. Keep mealtimes. Keep nap times. See if you can oh, structure your totally lives agree. around those things. Oh, you're talking naps for the kids. Right. Okay, darn it. <laughs> you met you. Okay, I know. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> but see, but like a routine could just simply be you sleep in if you want till eight sure. or whatever the number is. Right. And then – or the time is. Then we'll eat breakfast. Uh-huh. And then right after breakfast, you'll go weed the garden. Right, right. All day till and it's, it's done. all – it's just <laughs> right. the routine. But it's like predictable. Once they get it's predictable. Right. Then then they kind of know how their day is going to go. Absolutely. And there's a safety in that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, children very young, we're talking three or four, even younger than that with pictures, you can put that routine in front of them with pictures or words so that they can look at it and say, okay, I got up and I ate and then the picture of the toothbrush says I did this. And But keep them in that routine yeah. so that their their bodies are still functioning on the sleep they need yeah. and the food they need. You know, by, by midsummer, parents are saying, oh, I don't want to take my kids to the museum because – their tears once we get yeah. well, it's usually because they don't have first the sleep that they right. need You've and the routine gone, that they need. Yeah, they're underslept, they're over sugared. Right, yeah, for and sure. Have, and they haven't weeded yet. <laughs> and the garden still <laughs> needs work. On top of that, they have to go back to school eventually, mm. and it comes really fast. And those first two or three weeks when we do go back to a new school year get really hard if we haven't kept them in that. In that healthy kind of routine. That learning mode. Right. Yeah. And so that gets really difficult when all of a sudden we send them back and it's, hey, now you gotta get up at seven again yeah. and to bed it and that right. gets tricky. Oh, that's a great. So, idea. so keep them in keep them in that routine. Kind of keep that in your life. It really helps. When we're doing this though, we don't want to lose sight of the need to be flexible. When we get into a summer, that is the beauty of being able to relax, fill your time in with whatever it might be. Right. You know, let someone say, Hey, right now can we have a water fight? And say yes. Decide that this summer you're going to be the yes parent or the yes mom. Oh, I need to do that. And try to say yes 90% of the time and no only 10%. 
Now, what's really funny is parents always say, well, that's impossible because 90% of the time they're asking me for things they can't have or can't do. Right. But most things we can actually turn around. Even that, even if a child asks for, I don't know, can I have M&Ms? Instead of saying, no, you can't, say, you can have all the fruit you want. Yeah. <laughs> you can have all the string cheese. You can yeah. have all the yogurt. And substitute. See where you can say yes much more yeah. than you say no. And be creative in how you do that. In how you do that. And really that works in in any relationship, doesn't yeah. it? Even with my husband, if anything I say, he's always saying, no, no, uh-huh. I don't I want know. to, no. Yeah. It's a turn off instantly. Totally. And our kids feel the same way. So seek this summer really to be that kind of parent. And you'll see that these types of habits then carry into the school year. And we start to address them in ways that makes it so much easier to always be a yes parent. You could just say, can I watch TV? Yeah. As soon as we've done our other things and we're back to, yeah. And you can watch it for this amount of time. Absolutely. And again, you haven't said the word no. No, No, just like a red pen on a paper you wrote in school is an instant turn (laughs) off, right? Totally. Instantly we put up those walls. You never got red marks. Red marks? Oh, I'm sure I got plenty of red marks. You were a teacher that never gave red marks. That's what my daughter said. It's true. I don't use a red pen. What color do you use? Any color but red. Wow. Any color is good but red. Purple, fluorescent, pink even. But oh studies show that red pens, they immediately, what do you think when you see red? <gasps> it's exactly Kick right. in the gut. I, I did do very pens. poorly in a graduate statistics class though. Oh, yeah. Well, so I was dating I. my husband though. So yeah. It, but it I was still care. statistics. So it, it does. I mean, that's really not going to help you anywhere. And I don't need it. No. And my kids don't if need it. If you go that. get a doctorate, you'll, you could just retake it. <laughs> well, I, I'm just glad they let me get my master's once I was. Yeah, it you, wasn't. You survived. It was a bad semester. We're talking to Heather Ann Johnson from familyvolley.com. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion how to not kill your kids this summer. It sounds negative, but it's really very positive. How to have a healthy summer with your family. That's the goal. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. To the Matt Townsend Show. Hadge is here. Heather Ann Johnson, she's a, uh, a faculty member, adjunct faculty member here at Brigham Young University, and she teaches the principles behind successful families and the importance of spending time together. If you go to her website, familyvolley.com, you can uh, see her blog and get all of her latest information. She also has a book she published in 2011 called Family Fun Fridays which is a book full of ideas for what you can be doing to have fun with your kids. Also, soon-to-be-released Family Fun, Saturdays, Sundays, Mondays, and Thursdays. She has yet to put a Wednesday book together. We don't like Wednesdays. Wednesdays are hard. They are hard. They're harder days to have fun on. Uh, That might just simply be uh, Mom's a Grouch Wednesday, and uh, you'll have to come up with a whole other book of activities. Hadge, how are you? Good. Really good. I like what we're learning here. When I said uh, how to not kill your children during the break, you right. you gasped. I gasped. You were Did like, I, huh? I what? can't believe he said that. He said that on the air. <laughs> hey, um, so so what else do we need to do? We need to kind of focus on our kids, make sure that we, you know, we're trying to like not keep up with the Joneses. We want to make have them make goals. We want to find out what they want to do to succeed in life. Right. What else do we need to do? We're going to keep up with our routine, and then we are actually going to come up with some sort of schedule. Oh, boy. I know. I know. It goes against everything we believe in in summer, right? But a schedule is really going to help us. So there's a couple different approaches that are really fun. 
we can take kind of the bucket list approach. Yeah. So that's where you all sit down as a family or you sit down with your kids and everybody just throws out all the things they'd love to do this summer. Right. right? Now, a really good thing to remember is one really big activity a week is pretty – is a that's good a number. That's a lot. Yeah. It's a good number. Uh, going to an amusement park. Right. That's a big day. Right. Or even you know a museum or a water park or the movies. That can count as your one big activity. Yeah. So kind of look at that bucket list and think, okay, there's, there's 50 things on here. What's going to be doable? Let's kind of start plugging them into our weeks and months and see how they fit. Yeah. Plug those big ones in. Let the little ones then be things that happen when it's, hey, what do we do today? We don't have anything, but everyone wants to. And fill those in with those smaller yeah. things. So that's one approach. It's called the bucket list approach, and that's it really cool. is just yeah, that. And, and, you, and you all just try to agree on what are the big 10 things we're going to do this summer. Right. And the fun thing about that is if everyone contributes, you've got enough weeks that you can say, okay, you know, Susie wants these three things and Jimmy wants those two things. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of accommodate everyone's feelings and everyone's desires. Yeah. So this works really well. Another approach that a lot of families like to do is a theme day. Mm. where each day of the week has a theme. For example, maybe it's a Make It Monday, and that means it's crafts or creativity. Tuesday could be Time to Read Tuesday, and you go to the library to hear books read or everybody reads a book that day, whatever it might be. Uh, Wednesday, lots of people like a Wet and Wild Wednesday, which means something with water. There you go. Now, remember, this doesn't mean that every Wednesday we're spending $150 to take our kids to a water park. This could be the hose in the backyard. This could be, you know, our kids last week turned the hose on, put it underneath the trampoline and went to town, you know, jumping That's cool. in storms. Very simple things, yeah. right? What about Penitentiary Friday? <laughs> That's my favorite where you just lock everyone in their room. Oh, you lock them. I thought you were going to make them go to the penitentiary. No, you just lock them in their rooms and they can't get out until their attorney shows up. <laughs> Who's who? Who is there? Who is who is the <laughs> that's attorney how I, for your kid? That's how I babysit. Oh, penitentiary Friday. Oh, lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> we frisk them, we tase them, and we throw them in their room. It's tons of fun for you. You would everyone. have all day to do yeah, whatever you want. That's the idea. Have you ever had a day like that oh, ever, since having kids? No, uh, yeah. I, I've had a few. I should ask your wife, yeah. actually, is who I should ask. Pretty much every day that I babysit, but you don't babysit your own kids. Don't know if you know you that. Don't, you, you don't. You don't. You no. watch your kids. You take you take care of them. Yeah, that's important. Don't ever <laughs> say babysit or your wife will have your head. Right. Or you get penitentiary yeah, Friday. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so very simple themes. Other things, Thursday could be a thoughtful Thursday. I know we try to focus on service in the summer. That's cool. When we have more time, it gives our service children... Service Saturdays. Oppor- yeah, our children opportunity to serve other people, not just our own garden and yeah. mow our own lawn. Ugh. But look around them right. and think, what what do other people need and how can we do that? And for Friday, sometimes families love to do just a fun Friday where you choose anything you want, anything goes, whether that's hanging out at home. So it's another approach. So you've got kind of this bucket list where you just throw it all down and choose what sounds good. Then you've got these themes. Again, your children would know what to expect. And it doesn't always have to be so much fun. You know, a a wet and wild Wednesday could be, I don't know, learning about how clouds work and Hmm. precipitation. And it could be anything like that. So it gives you the opportunity to, as a parent, to think, what is it that our children need right now? And how can I then facilitate that? That's great. Lots of fun ways to do it. Another one is just a very open-ended general schedule. And that schedule is, these are the things that have to be done. Here is our free time. And then as you get to that day, you fill it in. Yeah. And you decide. And then and this to have it be predictable and then make it too so, you know, maybe Fridays are the day that mom or dad that has to work, we take some of those days off. Right, right. So we're having we're actually interacting we're, and it's planned. It's ahead. It just makes it like more likely to happen. Right? Absolutely. Because cool. again, anytime we plan like that, we're going to put more energy and effort to making yeah. it happen. That's awesome. 
One of my very favorite ways, though, to approach whether it's summer or not is to look at what I call needs and values. And I know for our family this does so much good, but we actually sit down and we write down all the needs that our family has. Hmm. And then in a column next to it, we write down the values that we want to either be teaching or that we think are kind of lacking or that we want to focus on. And then we structure our activities and our events and our days around the needs and values that we have at the time. Cool. So if you're looking for a way to go about this and you, you want the creativity, but you want it to, you want to know that it's going to benefit you, simply take a piece of paper, divide it in half and at the top right needs and at the other, you know, the top of the other column right values, and then go through and write those down. You know, a need could be to get the garden in order. Yeah. That's, a, that's a need, right? Or I know we are refinishing half of our basement. So a need right now is to tile that new, yeah. that new downstairs bathroom. That's a need we have. And so all those things go on the need column. But then when we look at values, you know, our son, like I mentioned, who's almost 13, just in about a week and a half, a focus for him right now is to understand how to set goals and then attain them. He's at that age where we want him to do those. Yeah. So those are values and skills we're focusing on. And so we can look at that and then I can look at it and we can look at it together and say, what do we need to do to achieve those values, to teach them and to fulfill those needs? How cool. And then if you tie that into your bucket list, absolutely, you could do both and then merge it and create this Mongo bucket values needs list. Right. right. And you can see how they really do That's come cool. together. Yeah. And so, and needs and values, this works for anything. This works for our family rituals. Mm-hmm. This works for anything we're trying to do. If we want our families to get stronger, look at those two categories and you will quickly see the deficit and figure out how to fill it. Hads, that's the and real deal. Summer's no different. That's cool. So keep those two things in mind. It's a really good approach. Plus, let's just remember to hydrate. Right. We got to make sure they're hydrated. We need lots of water, <laughs> lots right. of snacks, right? What's uh, what's the last thing that th- we got about 30, 40 seconds? What's, what's the number one thing we need to remember for summers and our children? Well, I don't know number one, but the last one is we've got to turn off the technology. Oh, yes. So true. It is so easy. Except the radio. Except listen to BYU listen radio. Listen to the radio, yeah. especially from what, 7 to 10, 7 Mountain, to 10 Standard Mountain Standard Time. Right? But other than that, we're very quick to go right to technology when summer hits. You know, we've, we've had a busy school year. We have. And so when our kids get bored and they start the whining, it's go turn on a show or grab your tablet or where's your phone yeah. or go get a game. We know the technology, too much of it creates really aggressive, irritating, irritable kids. Sure. And so if we want a successful summer, turn it off. Turn it off. Maybe you're going to have them earn their tech time. Yeah. And they get an hour or two a day after they've finished other things. Or maybe you just say, hey, you have an hour a day. Once you've used it up, TV's off. So true. But if we don't get our children to learn to fill their time on their own and to explore and and grow on their own because technology hinders them – that will that will You'll be a lose detriment them. always. That's right. right. You'll lose them. Right. It's a waste of summer. Well, yeah, and and it's a, and it's a disconnection from Absolutely. everybody. Man, Absolutely. Very very good stuff. Heather, you did it again. Piece of cake. Good stuff. Hadge, they call her because you're soaking in it. <laughs> and uh, go check out her website, familyvolley.com. Wonderful ideas as well as her book. You gotta don't forget the book, Family Fun Fridays. Um, families matter, and Heather makes us uh, make sure we put them first. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking to our other family members from BYU Sports Nation. Spencer and Jerem will be joining us. Great stuff coming ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Whoa. 
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Short people got no reason to live at all. We're going to go to two tall people, I guess. Spencer and Jerem down at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. What up? How are you guys? Solid. Feeling much better. We, we, let, we let that song play a long time for you. I was just going to say that we're feeling much better because you let that song play for like 30 solid seconds. Yeah. <laughs> I was being updated. I was, I was receiving an update in my ear as that was going down. Hey, uh, you guys have a big day tomorrow. Sportsorama down here at BYU. We're not even worrying about tomorrow, honestly. There is a lot You've got today, today. Today's show is a little out of control. That's yeah, the loaded show. Tyler Hawes is going to be on the program. Just yep. signed a Spanish League contract. Hoping for the NBA still. Um, we'll, we'll see what happens Thursday with the draft. Daniel Summerhays, fresh off a top 30 finish at the U.S. Open on the PGA Tour. And Sean Olmstead, the new men's volleyball coach. So loaded. Holy cow. But uh, everything came to a screeching halt this morning when we found out that a former BYU football coach, the one that coached before Lavelle Edwards, passed away this morning. Oh, no. His name's Tommy Hudspeth. Huh. Um, so we're going to talk to one of his former quarterbacks, Mark Lyons, oh, wow. uh, about him. For those that don't know him, he, he left a legacy at, at BYU. He's probably underappreciated just because of who came after him, and that, that is Lavelle Edwards. But Tommy Hudspeth coached BYU to their first ever conference championship in 1965. It took 43 years to win one. Oh, my heavens. Yeah, this is the 50-year anniversary of that conference championship, which will be celebrated later uh, this year by the members of that team. So he he brought in a winning mentality when it was non-existent to BYU football. I mean, it was a good season when BYU won three games, seriously, before the Tommy Hudspeth era. Isn't that – and now they're all so – used to winning that they may not quite remember the good old days of how hard it used to be. Oh, yeah. oh man. The, 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 the best and worst thing that ever happened to BYU was winning the national title. That's true, The huh? best is obvious why. The worst is because every year BYU fans think they have the shot of the national championship. <laughs> because <laughs> they true. did it, right? It's so true. It's, so it's a really high standard. And Tommy Hudspeth was the first guy to kind of uh, take that to another level, right? His first quarterback was a guy by the name of Virgil Carter. Now, Virgil Carter was later the kind of brainchild QB for a young uh, offensive coordinator named Bill Walsh. Oh, my word. Who later who coached with the Cleveland Browns and later, of course, the uh, San Francisco 49ers, West Coast offense, offense, that whole thing. So it kind of starts with a Tommy Hudspeth in Provo with Virgil Carter that leads to eventually the Niners in all did, of football. Did you oh my heavens, did you guys know he went and coached the Detroit Lions in the NFL? Yes, a couple of years. And the Toronto Argonauts. Uh he so he coached UTEP, he coached in high school, he coached BYU and UTEP, he assisted with Tulsa, That's he was cool. with the Lions, he was in the Canadian Football League. He did it this all. He was all over the place. Yeah, he did it all. And so, so we're going to talk about him and his legacy, talk to Mark Lyons today about what he meant. You already him. had a big day, and then sadly the passing of Tommy Hudspeth. That threw yes. you into a spin now. Yeah, so we it's the rare four-guest day, um, but we'll, it, it's going to be great. And you mentioned tomorrow. Yeah. Tomorrow is... Not even <laughs> That's close to being on crazy. our lives right now. In fact, you, what are we doing not, tomorrow? I don't want to be rude, but you're stealing one hour of my show. Tomorrow? Yeah. No, we, we aren't. Aren't you? 
No, state, oh, of the, state, state of the program. State of the program. Oh. That's not us. Oh. It has nothing to do with BYU sports. Oh, I thought you guys. How dare you throw fiery darts at us? <laughs> we're noon to 2 Eastern. We had on the back end. Oh, yeah. you. Yeah, that's true. It's sad. <laughs> oh, boy. Everyone gets, I guess I just get to go home early. Thanks, guys. <laughs> so you just do two hours tomorrow? Yeah. Two, two hours, then it's nap time. Yeah. So really, BYU TV Sports is doing you a favor. They really are. No, they yeah. totally. They, by the way, the way I see it, BYU Sports always does me a favor. <laughs> I get to talk to you guys every day. It's a major favor. That a baby. And I didn't even. You guys have all this incredible stuff, and sadly, the passing of Tommy Hudspeth. And I've got nothing for you except one story. I don't know if you want to hear about it, but it'll change your life. I'd love to. Well, if it's going to change our lives, then yeah. Okay, and this is I really because I'm worried about you guys because I saw you walk in the other day, and um, I don't know if you know this, but skinny jeans. There was a lady that was hospitalized for four days because she wore skinny jeans. <laughs> and she's an Australian woman. She spent four days in the hospital after her skinny jeans cut off the blood supply to her calf muscles and caused her to collapse. Oh, the wow. 35-year-old woman spent the day helping relatives move in a new home, and they noticed she and she noticed that her pants were somewhat tight. Um, but in, I guess what happened is she had to squat down a lot to clean out the cupboards, and all that squatting in her skinny jeans pretty much destroyed the circulation in her calves. And as she was walking home later that night, her feet became weak, and she fell down, had to crawl to the side of the road and hell a taxi, and then went to the hospital and was in the hospital for four days wow. because of massively swollen legs. That, what, really? Is it worth it? I've been fighting the whole skinny jean revolution, yes. especially on the male side. Yes. Ever, I keep ever since you, it started. You don't need to wear them <laughs> to look good, Spencer. Dude, I don't wear skinny jeans. Oh. I just wear jeans that fit. Well, I think yours are, I think yours would actually be called skinny. No, mine would not be called skinny jeans. No, Spence, if you have to walk like you got off a horse, they're skinny jeans. <laughs> look up look up every male in college I know. in the Northwest aged 18 to 22, and you will find skinny jeans and that revolution, which oh, I'm vehemently opposed to. I agree. Ridiculous. And I'm doing this. So this is a shout out. This is actually, uh, this is a community service update or uh, announcement. Do not wear skinny jeans. It will cut your circulation off. You'll lose a that leg. That will happen. It will happen. Is it worth it? No. I, I think it comes on the tags. Like, it, it does. Warning. Warning. Do not crouch or work in low squatting cupboards. Also, don't put anything in your pockets. You'll never find it. <laughs> or get it out. <laughs> you never get it out. I heard of a guy that put his cell phone in his skinny jean pockets six years ago. He still can't get it out. <laughs> they had the jaws of life. They cut <laughs> it out. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what we bring you. You guys bring us serious stuff. Surgically remove it from And we bring you skinny jeans. Yes. Yep. <laughs> well, that's why together we succeed. <laughs> together we reach. <laughs> Here he goes. Here he goes. You knew hey, it was going to happen. I know. You guys are the best. And you know what? Uh, they need to listen to your show today because you are throwing it all together today. Yeah. This is if Look, if you haven't tuned into the show... And you want to give it a try. Today, Today's is, the day. Today is the day. Tomorrow will be the day, too. You'll Shame just... on you if you haven't up to this point. Yeah, where have you been? we welcome you with open arms. Yeah, I can only, I mean, Someone I bring. Someone who randomly tuned in on Sirius XM in, like, New Jersey right now, it's like, Skinny. what did I do that was wrong? <laughs> Shame on me for what? Skinny jeans. Skinny <laughs> jeans and not <laughs> listening to BYU Sports Nation. All right, gentlemen, we'll go, uh, go make it happen. Proud Thanks, of you. Dr. Stay Matt. sweet, Maddie. You stay oh, sweet too. Settle down, Jerry. Thanks, gentlemen. Be good. Bye bye.
Oh, man, that's cool. That's sad about Tommy Hutspeth. Uh, that's a big deal. Again, uh, Tommy Hutspeth passed away, passed BYU a football coach from 1964 to 1971. Um, anyway, pre- he preceded Lavelle Edwards, but he set the standard for heaven's sakes. Uh, great show today. We've, we've covered them all. Everything from uh, the, the thievery that goes on in professional international sports like uh, soccer and um, or football, as they call it, uh, cricket, all of those sports. You would never believe how uh, how much illegal stuff's going on. How much how much how many times the mafia and some of the gangs are involved in fixing some of those games. If you didn't hear that segment of our show, go find it on iTunes. And uh, really, it just is all about the fix that's in. And the 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 one of the leading experts in um, anti fixing of sports, Declan Hill joins us or joined us in that conversation. It was fascinating. And he gave a warning to the United States to watch out because we could easily fall just like the rest of the world that uh, that has so many of their sports and sporting organizations that have already been corrupted with fixing. Um, a couple of other little news uh, things we wanted to cover. You know, at the end of the show, we always like to cover a, a hero story. We've got a wonderful uh, one here about a firefighter responding to a 911 call. After responding to an emergency call, one firefighter ends up saving the lives of his own family members. Aaron Van Ripper, uh, Van Ripper, a Texas firefighter, responded to an emergency call reporting a car crash. Once on scene, Van Ripper learned that the victims in the crash were his own wife and seven-year-old son. Immediately, the firefighter jumped into action to save the lives of his family, but was reported saying that the look of the car, I don't know how either of them survived or lived. There was nothing left of that car. His wife underwent surgery to repair her pelvis, which was broken in five places, while his son was left with a broken arm and a broken leg. Both will be in wheelchairs while in recovery. After hearing the story, one family friend set up a GoFundMe page to help the family with its medical costs. An apparent donation of $15,000 was made by someone under the name of Taylor Swift. Swift's management team will not release any information on whether she was the real donor, but a close friend of hers did tell the news that it was the Taylor Swift that made the generous donation in the family's honor. A total of over $88,000 has been raised for that family so far. So our hero of the day uh, happens to be Aaron Van Ripper, and honestly, his wife, his his uh, seven-year-old son, what a tragedy to show up as a firefighter on a scene, and then all of a sudden, can you imagine, you know, finding out that that is your family that you're working to get out of the car? Uh, serious, serious, difficult thing. In fact, when you think about it, all the firefighters, the police departments, I mean, imagine having to be a police uh department member that shows up at the scene of that church shooting in South Carolina or the scene of a school shooting in some in some other place. We really don't uh, probably appreciate our um, firefighters, our police department, and uh, and just all of the public servants that keep this crazy country working. So maybe spend some time thanking them as well. And uh, that's it, my friends. That's the show. Remember, we can't do everything for you, but we can bring you the ideas and the tools to help you see the good in the world. Our goal on this program 
is to just shed some light on it. Give you some light. Let you take that light back to your family and create a better day, a better life for everyone. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back again tomorrow. A great uh, day tomorrow. Media BYU Sports Day uh, is tomorrow um, where we get a chance to talk to all the coaches and, and athletes. So stick with BYU tomorrow. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Until tomorrow, take care and make it a good one.